the voice of the Messianic movement, Solace Radio. Explore the ministries of the Torah and find treasures. Serving hungry spirits worldwide with the message of Yeshua HaMashiach. Solace Radio, 24 hours a day. Serving hungry spirits worldwide with the message of Yeshua HaMashiach. Solace Radio, 24 hours a day. Shalom and welcome to Torah Kai, God's teachings of life from Congregation Zion Sake, a Messianic Jewish congregation located on the corner of Dimby Boulevard and Shields Road in Newport News, Virginia. Our biblical mandate as Jewish believers is to be a light unto the world by sharing Yeshua, Jesus the Jewish Messiah, to the Jew first, then the nations as prescribed in Romans 1.16, bringing God's plan of salvation to the ends of the earth. We hope you enjoy today's teaching. Want to read a Daily Nosh from George Witten and worthy news that he posted this past week. Yes. U.S. President Donald Trump announced this week that the U.S. recognizes Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. Yeah. Come on. His announcement came at a historical moment, and, and here's the key. As it was 100 years, two jubilee cycles, almost to the day when Jerusalem was liberated from the Ottoman Empire by the British, in 1917. Ironically, if he'd have just waited a few more days, because it was the first day of Hanukkah, if he'd have just waited a few more days. However, we'll take it. And in 1917, when the British entered into Jerusalem, it was 400 years, eight jubilee cycles to the day, of when the Turks initially entered Jerusalem in 1517 and conquered it and put it under the Ottoman Turkish Empire. So this month, marks 500 years, 10 jubilee cycles, 10 is Yad, it's the hand of God, since the Ottomans first captured the holy city. Historically, as you know, it also marks the 50th uh, year, the one jubilee cycle since Jerusalem was liberated in the Six-Day War in 1967. Like Israel during the Hanukkah story that unfolded some 2,181 years ago, we're living in a unique time in history. As once again, Israel finds herself surrounded by enemies with few friends willing to stand with her. Despite those who hate Israel, one thing is absolutely certain. The God of Israel is watching over this tiny nation. He stands guard over her, and now the set time to favor her has come. As we saw on the earlier slide before worship, Psalms 2, the, the nations rage. The nations rage. The nations are raging, but who cares? Because those kingdoms, they're all going away. There's a king that's coming. Israel's restoration, I'm going to go back to the article, began back in early 1917 when John Hilton, a mechanic in the British Royal Navy Royal Flying Corps, attended church one Sunday morning. Noticing Hilton's uniform, a clergyman approached and told him, having read Isaiah 31, he believed that airplanes would be used by the English Air Force to deliver Jerusalem into British hands. He was right, but only partly. Months later, General Allenby was seeking advice from London as he prepared to liberate Jerusalem from 400 years of Turkish rule. He received a wire from London, and the wire quoted, now this is the English government. Now, this would be unheard of today, but 100 years ago, when he wires London for directions concerning the liberation of Jerusalem, they wire him back and quote Scripture, Isaiah 31, starting at verse 4. For here, was Ad- here is what Adonai says to me. As a lion or a lion cub growls at its prey and isn't frightened away by the shouts of the hordes of shepherds called out against him, their voices do not upset him. So likewise, Adonai Sebaot will descend to fight on Mount Zion on its hill. Verse 5, like hovering birds, Adonai Sebaot will protect Yerushalayim. 
In protecting it, he will rescue it. In sparing it, he will save it. After receiving that wire, General Allenby called for British planes to fly low over Jerusalem and drop leaflets warning the Turks of his coming. When the Turks picked up the leaflets and read the name Allenby, they heard Allah and Nebi, which in Arabic means prophet of Allah. So they surrendered Jerusalem without firing a shot. A 10th century Islamic poet, which they were familiar, had written, The man who will conquer Jerusalem and redeem it from the infidel for all time to come will enter the holy city humbly on foot, and his name is God's prophet. General Allenby dismounted from, and it's interesting that their prophet said liberation from the infidels, which was them. General Allenby dismounted from his horse and walked into Jerusalem on foot. The liberation of Jerusalem took place the first day of Hanukkah, the Feast of Dedication in 1917, 100 years ago this coming Tuesday at sunset. Two Jubilee cycles. Adonai's attention to detail is astounding. He is not asleep. He has not forgotten Israel. He will and is restoring and rededicating his land and his people in our day. Who could have imagined that the name of an English general and the verse of an Islamic poet would be the recipe for a bloodless victory, which would also fulfill an ancient Hebrew scripture of Isaiah 34. Now, here's what's interesting. I spoke with George this morning on the phone, and a White House staff member got this post and asked his permission if they could forward this to the president. (laughs) God, listen. There are so many things swirling about right now. And, and as we, and I'm going to get into Hanukkah here in a minute, but as we worship tonight, let our light shine. Here's the flip side, and we've been sharing this for five or six years, and it is coming. Things are going to turn very sour. Things are going to go downhill quick. But here's the good news. We have the light. We have the message. We have the love of Yeshua. And there remains, come on, there remains God's saving grace, redemption. There is a Goshen in the midst of the plagues for those who are in covenant relationship with him. And though the nations are going to rage, as we read in Psalms, and they're going to counter this plan, Europe, nations that supported this, we're beginning to back out. Who cares? Who cares what the nations think? Because their rule is coming to an end. We talked about this last week. We're in a transition of power. One epoch is ending. The next one is beginning. We're in a transition between two kingdoms right now. And it is a time of radical paradigm shifting. It's a time of great restoration. It's a time of great lights going forth. I believe the power is going to be released soon, unlike any other time we've seen in history. And signs and wonders will return to the body. We will once again be raising the dead. And once again, the nations will know that there is a God in Israel. And I think today, right now, the nations are learning that there is a God in Israel. And his name's not Allah. His name is Adonai. And he's the God of life. And that's what makes this story so profound is the fact that it happened on the first day of Hanukkah, 100 years ago this Tuesday, the Festival of Lights, which is a dedication celebrating a key historical military event and a miracle in our history. It's not a biblical feast. This isn't in Leviticus 23. However, Adonai still honors our honoring him at this time. From the Apocrypha, we see the history behind the military victory over the Greek army invaders in 2 Maccabees 10, starting in verse 1. Now, Maccabeus and his followers, the Lord leading them on, recovered the temple in a city. This is after two years of occupation. 
And they tore down the altars which had been built in the public square by the foreigners and also destroyed the sacred precincts. You know, and here's what's interesting. And this all ties in so much with Hellenism. Um, the Vatican, maybe there's a few of you who have been there, that sits in Rome. The Vatican wasn't built as a church. The Vatican was built as a pantheon of Greco-Roman gods. And they changed the name from Apollos to St. Peter. And I'm sharing this with you because when the Greeks invaded, they didn't tear down the temple. They kept the structures and put statues of their gods in this place. So when, when the Maccabees, when they got in here and, and they won, they immediately started tearing down these altars which had been built in the public square and destroyed uh, the sacred precincts. Verse 3, they purified the sanctuary and made another altar of sacrifice. Then striking fire out of flint, they offered sacrifices after a lapse of two years. And they burned incense and lighted lamps and set out the bread of presence. And when they had done this, they fell prostrate and besought the Lord that they might never again fall into such misfortunes, but that if they should ever sin, they might be disciplined him with forbearance and not be handed over to blasphemous and barbarous nations. Verse 5, it happened that on the same day on which the sanctuary had been profaned by the foreigners, the purification of the sanctuary took place, that is, on the 25th day of the same month, which is Kislev, which is this coming Tuesday at sunset. And they celebrated it for eight days with rejoicing in the manner of the Feast of Booth or Sukkot. Eight days as we just celebrated Sukkot. And in Sukkot, if you recall, we talk about this. The Sukkot was lit up like Shea Stadium. Multiple four-story lampstands with oil lamps that burned round the clock. The wicks were the old priestly garments. It was illuminated round the clock for seven days. That's why the Festival of Lights is associated with this, as well as the menorah. And remembering how not long before, during the Feast of Booths or Sukkot, they had been wandering in the mountains and caves like wild animals. Verse 7, therefore, bearing ivy, wreathed wands, and beautiful branches, and also fronds of palm, they offered hymns of thanksgiving, Zivachtodah, to him who had been uh, given success to the purifying of his own holy place, they decreed by public ordinance and vote that the whole nation of the Jews should observe these days every year. And so by proclamation, such as we do with Purim, we still honor and celebrate these days. The first point I want to make to you right now is it's okay to decorate. It says they decorated. So this is a tradition that dates back to before the Second Temple period. Second Maccabees 10 prescribes that the celebration should and would be eight days, which is how we celebrate it today. The Mishnah fills in the blanks. Uh, another reason as to why it was eight days and explained by William J. Morford in the Power New Testament, who discusses the military victory of Hanukkah and the miracle of lights. It says Antiochus tried to eliminate Judaism, not so much by killing the Jews as by forbidding the worship of the God of Israel. Reading of Torah was forbidden along with circumcision, honoring the Sabbath, etc., in 167 B.C., a priest by the name of Matithyahu Hasmonea started guerrilla warfare along with his sons and a few followers. By the way, this guerrilla warfare is still studied in our own war colleges today. We like to think that we invented this warfare in our own revolution, and that is actually incorrect. It was developed 2,000 years before that by the Hasmoneans. What they did in the hill country of Judea and Samaria was so amazing that books and their exploits are still studied by modern guerrilla fighters. Early in the war, Judas Hasmonea took over after his father's death, and he is the one who came up with the legendary tactics. His motto was, Michamocha Ba'elim Adonai, from Exodus 15:11, who is like you, O Lord, among the mighty. The initials of those words spell Maccabee, which is the name that was later applied to Judas and his followers. Although spelled differently in Hebrew, the Hebrew word for hammer sounds like Maccabee. Therefore, he was called the hammer, which in Hebrew is Maccabeus, 
So the books of Maccabees and the Apocrypha were written about their successful wars. I just love that, the hammer. Not Lowell the Hammer Stanley, but Judas Maccabee, the Jew, the Hebrew hammer, the Yid hammer. This was the first war fought over a principle of religious freedom. It was the first successful guerrilla war in history, paralleling our own American Revolution, also fought over a principle using guerrilla tactics. As they got into the temple, the priests needed to repair and rededicate the temple right away. Dedication is an eight-day process that requires the use of sanctified oil for the lampstand. In our Vayichra, Leviticus Torah studies, matter of fact, we talked about this Tuesday, that sanctification process, Leviticus 8, Leviticus 9. Whatever's done in the temple, it takes eight days to sanctify it, from the people to the implements. The Lord, through a creative miracle, made a one-day supply. They only had one druse of oil burned for eight days until more oil could be sanctified. For this reason, Hanukkah, the Feast of Dedication, because the temple was rededicated, is also known as the Festival of Lights. Yeshua recognized this time period by going to the temple, and it's recorded in the Brihadashah in John 10, verses 22 and 23. Then came Hanukkah in Yerushalayim. It was winter, and Yeshua was walking around inside the temple area in Shlomo's colonnade. Hanukkah recalls Israel's salvation from foreign oppression, identity theft, and cultural genocide. Hanukkah recalls Israel's salvation from foreign oppression, identity theft, and cultural genocide. The Maccabees understood the dangers and the influences of Hellenization with clear and great clarity. Israel, again, is the only nation on earth whose identity, culture, and government is defined by a relationship with God and is expressed in our worship of Him. This understanding is the key of the Hanukkah story which at this time of year is also our story as modern Messianic Jewish believers. It's about identity. Every conflict in our history revolves around the enemy, Hasetan, attempting to remove our heritage and our identity. Heritage is something transmitted by or acquired from a predecessor, something that's possessed as a result of one situation or birth. Identity is the distinguishing character or personality of an individual. It's oneness, a quality or state or fact of being one. Here are other words associated with identity. Equality, accordance, agreement, conformity, likeness, resemblance, similarity. Our identity as Messianic Jews, as Messianic Gentiles, come from our conformity and our echad, our oneness, with Scripture. In fact, the more you read the Word and the closer to God you get, the more Jewish you start to look. That's identity, and that's through God's word, through God's culture. Heritage in Hebrew is Moreshah, whose root word is more, teacher. Heritage is our legacy that's taught from our predecessors. The essence of who we are is acquired from our ancestors, from Torah, from our biblical heritage, from the patriarchs. It is the foundation of our identity, which is the character and personality of the person built upon the sameness of those ancestors. Yeshua is the thread that binds us together as one with Abraham, Yitzhak, Moshe. It's the state of being exactly alike. Although the covers of two Bible editions are different, some of you have black covers, some of you have maroon covers. The inside, they're completely identical. The text is the same. Heritage and identity are inextricably intertwined. Adonai will teach you his heritage if you, you ready, keep Shabbat. Isaiah 58, starting at verse 13, says, If you hold back your foot on Shabbat 
from pursuing your own interests on my holy day. If you call Shabbat a delight, Adonai's holy day worth honoring, then honor it, not by doing your usual things or pursuing your interests or even speaking about them. That you got six days of the week for that. The seventh day is set apart. And listen, this isn't a Sunday versus a Saturday thing. That's what we seem to always delve into. Every day of the week is a great day to worship and honor the Lord. But there's only one Shabbat. Yeshua said he's Lord of Shabbat. Not Sunday, not Monday, not Tuesday. He says, I am Lord of Shabbat. And so this says, if you hold your foot back on this and honor that day by treating it as special, by sanctifying it, setting it apart, if you do, verse 14, you will find the light in Adonai. I will make you ride on the heights of the land and feed you with what? The heritage. The heritage of your ancestor, Yaakov, for the mouth of Adonai has spoken. Remember Ephesians 2? Gentiles, Romans 11. Gentiles, you're grafted into what? This Jewish rooted olive tree that represents Israel. Ephesians 2 said Yeshua came to tear down that wall of Mechitzah, separation, thus making the two one. And the Gentiles, who were once estranged, far off from God, didn't know God, didn't have a relationship with Him, are what? Become joint heirs, joint partakers, brought near, become what? Joint citizens with Israel. So this is the beginning seeds. When you start doing this, you start learning your heritage of who you are. We're in an identity crisis in the body. That's why there's separation. That's why this argument. This is, you know why we have apologetics? Because there's ignorance of the word. I loathe apologetics. This is why it's so important. Why is the criticality of names and identity and heritage so critical? Because it's the basis and foundation of covenant. It's the basis and foundation of covenant, not just semantics. Listen, to be in covenant with Allah is not to be in covenant with Adonai, the God of Israel. Contrary to populist revisionists, it's not the same God, different names, and many paths. That is absolutely incorrect. Adonai, the God of Israel, is the creator of all. The oracles of his word sit on your lap. It's the only book in the world that contains God's prophetic words that have come to pass, are coming to pass, and shall come to pass. No other book in the world contains such oracles of God. Allah is the desert God of poverty, one of 26 Bedouin gods. We know the difference how? By name, by identity, and by culture. Now, I think it's ironic that people say that they're people of the book, but they don't reflect the book. Who you say you are should reflect what that Bible is on your lap. The God of creation calls us by our name. He knows us in Isaiah 43.1. But now this is what Adonai says, He who created you, Yaakov, He who formed you, Israel, don't be afraid for I have redeemed you. I am calling you by your name. You are mine. And as you come into the kingdom, if you honor the things of God, then he begins what? Teaching you your heritage of who? Yaakov. You begin to see the connection here? The enemy seeks to change your name, to subvert and steal your identity. Remember Daniel? The enemy who seeks division and disunity works through deception. Hasetan, who has no power, works to deceive and this is one of his main areas of deception, it's identity. Because lack of identity, when you don't know who you are in the kingdom, you can't draw on the power base, because you don't know where you belong. This helps to explain the modern move of Messianic Jews and Gentiles. It's the restoration of identity, names, and biblical culture that's been stolen 
prostituted and subverted in the last 2,000 years. Think about Daniel and Babylon. They were given new names and identities that reflected confusion, false gods, false identity, identity theft. Daniel, whose name means God is my judge, they named him Belteshazzar, which means Prince of Baal. Now Baal, that's Jezebel. Hananiah, which means God is gracious, was changed to Shadrach, which means moon god. Mishael, who was like God, was given Meshach, who was like Aku, a Babylonian god. Notice the similarities? Who is like God? Who is like Aku? Are you kidding me? Azariah, God has helped. Abednego, which means servant, helper of Nido, another Babylonian god. Although deception and destruction was decreed by King Nebuchadnezzar, these young Israeli men kept their original names and they prevailed. They refused to submit to the system. If these guys were alive today, can I be so bold to tell you? They'd be Messianic. They're swimming upstream. In fact, when they refused to bow to the king's statue, he tried to kill them. They refused to eat the the trish, the food that they shouldn't have eaten from the king's table. Everywhere they went, they were going counterculture. Everywhere you go as a true Messianic believer, you're doing what? You're going counterculture. And everyone around you rages, just like in Daniel's day. But they refused to submit to this identity theft. Identity theft and confusion is a major reason our own Jewish people today have not fully come to the Messiah. Matter of fact, that's this week's Parsha. Yet I've shared this before, and it fits perfectly into the Hanukkah narrative. Yosef's brothers didn't recognize him. Let's go to Genesis 42, starting at verse 5. The sons of Israel came to buy along with the others that came since the famine extended to the land of Canaan. You know the whole story of the dream or how he got there. We Paul read some of the Parsha this evening. Got sold into slavery. The brothers tried to kill him. Judah wanted to go back and redeem him. You know the whole steal. Now, he's the number two in all the land of Egypt. He interprets Pharaoh's dream. Seven years of plus, seven years of famine. He not only told Pharaoh the dream of what it meant, but told Pharaoh how to react to it. That's a lot chutzpah. And Pharaoh was so wowed, he made him in charge of everything. And so now his brothers, the famine's coming up because they're suffering from the famine for food. And verse 6, Yosef was the governor over the land. It was he who sold to all the people of the land. Now when Yosef's brothers came and prostrated themselves before him on the ground, Yosef saw his brothers and recognized them. But he acted toward them as if he were a stranger and spoke harshly with them. He asked them, where are you from? And they answered, from the land of Canaan to buy food. So Yosef recognized his brothers, but they didn't recognize him. And Joseph, as we know, is a foreshadow of Yeshua. When we when we look at this, as you look to your left, here's Joseph as an Israelite shepherd. But if you look to the right, this is what the brothers see when they come before him. And why is that? The identity's been changed. In fact, Joseph's not speaking Hebrew, though he understands them. They don't know that. He's speaking to them through an interpreter, but he can speak Hebrew, obviously, hello. But he's speaking Egyptian. So when they come before him, they don't recognize him. What else do we see this at? Go to the next slide. On the right is Yeshua HaMashiach. I'm sorry, on the left, Rabbi, son of Israel. On the right is Jesus Christos, Jesus Christ, God of the Gentiles. Notice the identity separation. Now, let's pause here for a second. The Syrian Greeks immediately did what when they conquered Israel? Started turning the culture over. No Torah study. This is the story of why the dreidel, right? We were learning Hebrew through the dreidel. They thought we were playing kids' games that we're actually learning Torah. You can't read the Torah. You can't keep Shabbat. You can't do the Brihamalah. You can't do circumcision. All these things are what? A cultural attack. The point being to what? To assimilate them to the Greek 
Hellenistic culture. In fact, isn't that every one of our enemy's stories throughout our history? Think about this for a second. The Inquisition, 500 years. We were being murdered, filleted alive, horribly tortured for 500 years. Who sponsored it? The church. Who were the judges? The church. What was the purpose of the Inquisition? To ferret out and remove everything Jewish. You were forced to convert to Christianity. You were forced to publicly eat a ham sandwich and forced to walk through the town and confess that Judaism is not of God and is of the devil. And if you refused to do this, you were tortured and murdered. If you were caught in your house lighting Shabbat candles with the curtains closed, or one of your neighbors turned you in, the Inquisition came, got a confession from you after weeks and weeks of the most horrible torture you've ever comprehended in your life, and then you were burned alive. 500 years! As late as the 1890s, it was still being done in Mexico. It came to the New World. And what was the purpose? Cultural and identity theft. What did Hitler do? How did the whole Holocaust begin? In 1936, Kristallnacht. And what was the purpose? Destroy and burn all the Torah scrolls and burn the synagogues to the ground. If you want to eliminate the Jewish people, why not just round us up and start? They eventually got to that. But that tells you the root of where this is. It's a cultural identity theft. The enemy seeks to destroy it because Jeremiah says, as long as the sun comes up and the stars rise at night and the moon's in the sky, there will always be a remnant of my people on this earth. That is a thus saith the Lord written through the prophet Jeremiah. So let's just pause here for a second. If the enemy is going to make God out to be a liar, wouldn't you pick the smallest people group on the planet who is in covenant relationship with God and destroy them? The entire Bible on your lap deals with what people group? The Jewish people. That entire Bible on your lap was written by who? The Jews, including the New Testament. Ironically, even today, anti-Semitic Christians who want to divide Israel and want to boycott and divest themselves go every week and read from Messianic Jews or are discipled by Messianic Jews. Tell me the world's not crazy. I hate Jews. Open to the book of Matthew. <laughs> but you know how that become palatable? Because it's not Yeshua. It's Jesus. Jesus is a Christian, not a Jew. And so now you begin to see how we get Judenrat as part of the architecture of a German church because there's been an identity theft and there's been a complete segregation between biblical culture, the biblical people, and the truth of his word and what's being worshipped and practiced in religion. That is the heart and the essence of the Hanukkah story. Cultural theft and cultural identity. It's our responsibility and calling to remove the veil, to take the cloak that disguising Yeshua HaMashiach and reveal him, first of all, to our Jewish people, and second of all, to the world. And why is this? Well, because the church's calling, according to Scripture, is to provoke Israel to jealousy. But who will unveil the Jewish Messiah to them? Us, the Messianic community. That's the reason why God is reemerging us today, 2,000 years later. We've never disappeared. So how old is this Messianic Jewish thing? I get asked all the time. It's 2,000 years old. Read Matthew 1.1. That's when it started. Identity is directly connected to kingdom calling. Can I say that again? Identity is directly connected to kingdom calling. 
Your identity defines your calling and your prophetic destiny. The irony is here, I've met so many Christian Gentiles who say, ah, oh, this Jewish stuff, it's not for me. Uh, it, you're Judaizing, it's not for me. But like the Sadducees 2,000 years ago, they're content with. In fact, they model, they emulate this Hellenistic Greco-Roman culture. You know, 2,000 years ago, this whole thing between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Sadducees liked the Roman culture. They liked the Roman baths. They liked the Hippodrome. They liked chariot races. They liked Roman rule. And so today, we've got the Sadducees. They're alive and well in the church. They're in the body of Messiah. They like this. They enjoy this culture. They enjoy their connection to political powerhouses. They enjoy the DVD and CD contracts. That's what they want. They don't want the system to change. The Sadducees didn't want it 2,000 years ago. They don't want it today. And so I want you to leave tonight to know that the Hanukkah story is not that story or an old story. It's our story today. It's still going forth 2,000 years later. We today, we're still the hammer. I've called myself an ox goad. Today, it's the hammer. And people, they don't like the hammer. And there's a lot of controversy. And, and I'm going to say this again for the 50th time this year. If you go back to the book of Judges and go to a young Gideon, and he's threshing grain down in a pit, almost impossible to do because he's hiding from the Philistines. And an angel appears to him and tells him to start redeeming Israel. The redemption of Israel began by tearing down the idols in the nation. And his first command is to tear down his father's Asherah pole. His Asherah pole. That's Baal worship. And Gideon, you know, he's crazy. He's Meshuggah. He obeys what the angel tells him to do. And so the next morning, what's the entire town want to do? They want to kill him. They want to kill him. These are loving people. Listen to me. This is family members. See, we get this whole thing. Well, yeah, this is all about love. Well, in love, they wanted to kill him. They wanted to destroy him for tearing down that idol in love. It's contrary to Scripture. Listen to me. There are only two specific callings mentioned in Scripture. And that's why this identity thing is so critical. That's why we've got to get to the bottom of this. Messianic Gentiles, Romans 11.11. Paul said, in that case, I say, is it that they, the Jews, have stumbled with the result that they've been permanently fallen away? Heaven forbid. So much for supersessionism. So much for church replacement theology. So much for BDS. Every ism in the world says they're the new Israel. Mormonism. Supersessionism. Christianism. Even the Islamics say they've replaced Israel. Isn't that ironic? And the irony is we're all like, yeah, you're going to have it. <laughs> and then look at our history. You want to be the covenant people? Pick up your Bible, start reading, see how that works for you. As Tevye said, maybe sometime you could pick someone else. Paul said, heaven forbid, quite the contrary. It's by means of their stumbling that deliverance has come to the Gentiles in what? In order to provoke them to jealousy. Oh, I'm see. I'm sorry. You don't have the scripture up. For the last 2,200 years, we've been provoked, but not provoked to jealousy. And here's where this cultural identity gets so crazy. You know how you provoke a Jewish person? You be a Gentile, go to your Jewish dentist and say, hey, you should come to our Hanukkah service next week. What? You, what? You do what? Why are you celebrating Hanukkah? <laughs> I'm glad you asked. <laughs> when you have your Jewish podiatrist come to your house and, and have a meal in your sukkah. Listen, those are the things that drive us insane. Hey, we all love Christmas lights. Ooh, they're flashy. Ooh, 
I drive down my road, I look at him, look at that one, look at that one. It doesn't provoke me to jealousy. I'm not going to set that stuff up. That You see where I'm going with this? It's the trappings of God and his culture. That's what gets us. That's what drives us insane. You're not going to get us under a Christmas tree. That's not going to work because we know better. If you recall, I said this several Torah studies. I think I've said it at Shabbat. Typically, we're way overeducated. There's more degrees held by Jewish people than anybody else in the world. Most Jewish people have read the New Testament. They know what it says. Here's the irony. Most Christians haven't. And someone comes up and they start sharing Christ and they start talking about their Easter bonnet and their Christmas tree. We're just like, okay. (laughs) Next. And this isn't my Christmas rail. I'm trying to get this into our kishkas tonight about the criticality of identity and what you do. If your job is to provoke us to jealousy, start doing it. It's been 2,000 years. Why do we keep doing the same thing and expect different results? Don't get a program. Don't put a committee together. And don't start another Sunday church because that ain't getting us. If it would have worked, there'd be no Messianic synagogues today. Hello? And what's the Jewish call? Isaiah 49.6, he has said, It's not enough that you are merely my servant to raise up the tribes of Yahav and restore the offspring of Israel. Let me stop right there. That's a profound Messianic statement. Yeshua, the Jesus Messiah, came where? To the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's God's plan of salvation unto those who believe, to the Jew first in Romans 1.16. Are you beginning to see? This is the New Testament. I'm doing this on purpose. Those 12 Tamidim of Yeshua were Jewish. The 120 in the upper room getting filled with a Ruach, Jewish. Until Acts 10 and 11, the Spirit wasn't even fallen upon the Goy. It was only us. This moving in the Holy Spirit thing is not a church thing. That's our thing. So this first statement, it's not, it's, not, it's not enough that you merely are a service to raise up the tribes of Yaakov and restore the offspring of Israel. Salvation is of the Jews. We were the first to employ this. It was us. And we tens of, read Acts 21, tens of thousands of Jewish believers, zealots for the Torah, 2,000 years ago. You want to go back to the first church? That's it. Acts 21. Read it in your own Bibles. It says the same exact thing in the King James Version for my recovering Baptist friends. It's not enough that you, you should record all the miracles of Yeshua and bring salvation to the four corners of the earth. He says, that's not enough. I will make you a light to the nation so my salvation, my Yeshua, can spread to the ends of the earth. Romans 11.29 says God's free gifts and his callings are irrevocable. You, you can't defer this to somebody else. I can't assign this to somebody else. As a Jewish believer, I have one purpose in life, and that's to bring the good news to the nations. That's what I'm doing right now. As a Gentile Messianic believer, you have one purpose in life. You bring that back to the Jewish people. Now, here's the greatest irony whatsoever. Every Messianic synagogue, including this one, guess what our vision statement is? To bring the good news to our Jewish people. Now, I'm I'm admitting it. I know it's wrong. We're just in a transition, and, and once this thing breaks forth, our vision statement will change. Because as a Jewish believer, that's not my calling. My calling is to go to the nations. Every church I've ever been to, you know what they're called? They say they're called to do? Go to the nations. Every, every Gentile worship leader strolling a key, I'm called to the nations. Yeah, no, you're not. I'm sorry, but church, for those who are listening on the radio, I'm sorry. But the word of God doesn't say you're called to the nations. It says you're called to the Jewish people. You're called to provoke us to jealousy. 
The body of Messiah is in the midst of an identity crisis. The Messianic movement is part of this identity crisis. The enemy has been involved in identity theft since the creation of Adam. And we've got to be aware of his tactics and stick to our biblical heritage and identity. That's what this is all about. When your bank card gets stolen, you go to the bank. You don't say like, well, okay, let them have my account. <laughs> you go and you're fighting mad, right? Restore my money. Give me my account back. There's no difference spiritually. We're in the time of restoration. 2,000 years of stealing. It's time to stop it. And it's time to bring restoration. Their greater body has listened to the dark whispers of the enemy and fallen into the sins of Jeroboam, trading the inheritance, the heritage, and the identity of Adonai for that of the world and its false religions. Through Yeshua, you're given a new name. Remember, Avram became what? Abraham, Avraham. Yaakov, who he become? Israel. God will do a name change, but that name change is a relationship to being in covenant with him, not the world. We're not given a Babylonian name or Hellenism, but, you know, this is, I'm sorry, I just got to do this. In the original text, there's only one sentence that says Shaul, also known as Paul. That's the only place in the Greek text that Paul's ever used. Now, if you go to every church website, every denomination, they say Shaul was changed to Paul as a sign of his conversion to Christianity. He was given a Christian name. But he lived in a Greek world, and we live in a Greek world today. I've got a Gentile name, and I've got a Hebrew name. Every Jewish person here has a Hebrew name. They're given at birth. It's confirmed that they're a bar bat mitzvah. It's not a sign of our conversion. It's a sign of our covenant relationship with God. The King James Bible is the first uh, Bible translation that after that scripture, from there on out, they never used the term Shaul. They just used Paul. What's that called? Identity theft. Paul, the good Christian Gentile, the founder of the modern church. Listen, it's the dark whispers, the lies of the pits of hell. I'm kind of almost sorry I'm jesting about this because I'm so passionate about this. It infuriates me, the, the, the lying, the theft. And now we see it expanding because where is it else in our culture? But now there's gender confusion. Now not only do you not know who you are, you don't know what sex you are. You're some kind of worm. You can be one thing today and another thing tomorrow. What? Listen, listen, this is how critical this is. This is how you know who's involved in it. Because whose image are you made in? So when you stand up and you say, well, you know, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body, or I'm, I'm a man trapped in a woman's body, you're calling God a liar. And, and who's the chief of all lies? Come on. I could spend the next six months on this identity thing. I could do this all night long. This is the story of Hanukkah. And you got to get it tonight. We're still fighting it. You'll be given a new name, not a Babylonian name or a Hellenistic Greek name, but a holy name. For God as one of his children. Listen, Isaiah 56, starting in verse 3. A foreigner, ger tabor in the Hebrew. This means a non-Jew who's following and worshiping the God of Israel. You know, Yeshua, he's divine. That's the Son of God. He's in heaven. He sits at the right hand of the Father. We still pray to the Lord in Yeshua's name. There's confusion about who's running the show here. Adonai is still God. Are we? 
You'd be surprised how many arguments I've had over this. <laughs> so a Ger Tabor, a non-Jew, a Gentile, joining Adonai, should not say Adonai will separate from me from his people. See, here's the beauty. This is the beauty of the one new man. If you understand grafting, if I take a pear branch and graft it into an apple root, that apple root is an apple, but that pear branch is going to give us a pear. See, when you get grafted into the kingdom, here's the irony of this conversion stuff. This is why it's such a false identity theft. If you're black when you're grafted into the olive tree, you're black tomorrow when you wake up. If you're Jewish, you're Jewish tomorrow. If you're Irish when you come into the kingdom, you're still Irish tomorrow. We don't separate you from your people. This is why missionaries have failed. This is why Africa is the way it is and the Native Americans are the way they are. Because what we've said is, hey, listen, you, you want Jesus? You've got to dress like me, eat my food, play my instruments, and cut your hair like me. But the problem is that poor native kid looked in the mirror every day. He's not a white European. And so that's why the most mission people group in the world, the American Indian, less than 5% of them are believers today. Come on. Bells and whistles should be going off here. We're not going to separate you from your people when you get grafted into the kingdom. Likewise, the eunuch should not say, I'm only a dried up tree. Verse 4, for here's what Adonai says, is for the eunuchs who keep my Shabbats, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant. In my house, within my walls, I will give them a power. Man, I love that. What's happened to the greater body today? It's powerless. No longer able to influence greater society. No more signs and wonders. It's powerless. Why is that? Because they've not joined them. They've cut themselves from the Lord instead of joining in. In my house, within my walls, I give them power and a name greater than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will not be cut off. Their mishpocha is your identity. That's who you are. When you join yourself to the covenants and attendance of the Lord, when you do so in love, when you receive Yeshua, this Jewish Messiah, as your Lord and Savior, you're given a name greater than the sons and daughters, an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. John 1, starting in verse 12, says, But as to many who did receive him, to those who put their trust in his person and power, Yeshua and power, this identity and power, Man, he gave the right to become what? Children of God. Not because of bloodline, physical impulse, or human intention, but because of God. Your heritage and identity is sitting on your lap. Start reading. That is who you are in Yeshua. And we've listen, we've got to wield the hammer of revolution like it was done 2,000 years ago. We have to start tearing down the asterisk poles. We have to stop the sun worship. And we've got to restore the tenets of God back into God's house. We've got to rededicate the temple. We've got to clean it. You, here, in here, and in the buildings where we meet. The idols, they got to come down. The programs, they got to come down. Guerrilla tactics, guerrilla warfare. We've come at this head on. It's too big. It doesn't work that way. You gotta start getting subversive. You gotta start sailing underneath the radar. And it's one at a time. Remember, change never, it just doesn't come from the top down. That's not how it works. Revival and revolution start from the bottom up. Yeah, I like that word, insurgency. Shock troops of the Lord. This country's got the SEAL team. God's got Messianic believers. Let's rise. I know this is Virginia and we panic in snow. I'm not from Virginia, but I panic because Virginians are here and they panic. 
I cut my teeth as a young driver in real snow. It's everyone else I'm worried about. Lord, help us. I'm going to humbly ask you to consider in the next several days before we come into the first night of Hanukkah about rededicating yourself. About thinking how we just celebrated Sukkot and the eight days and that coming before him. And, and, you know, before we did that celebration, what do we celebrate? Yom Kippur, the 10 days of awe, the cleansing, the restoration. And, and, and I believe that's why they said we're going to do this in a manner of Sukkot. Because before they lit that menorah, before they started, started the fires or started the sacrifices, they had to get in there and what? They had to clean it. They had to clean out the dross, the idols, the asterisk poles, the Baal worship, the Babylonian, Hellenistic, call it whatever you want. We all got it in us. We're all in this world. We're not of it, but we're in it. And the dust of this world settles on us. And before God can do anything, before he can fill us with that light, with the oil, the vessel's got to be cleansed and sanctified first. So I'm praying in these next four days that you would take time to just dwell on this. Maybe go back and read the book of Maccabees. Maybe it's time for us to start being the hammer. Maybe it's time for the strategies of God outside the confines of what we're used to to begin operating in our lives, to confound the wisdom of the world. Huh? Maybe it's time we start moving in the power. Maybe it's time for signs and wonders to come back to the body. Maybe it's time we're going to start moving as sons and daughters of Zadok and begin teaching the others the difference. Not looking down. Remember, you can't clean the fish till you catch it. And time to start sharing the kingdom. Father, in Yeshua's name right now, we denounce and rebuke identity theft. We pull it out by the root tonight right now in Yeshua's name as we're taught at AP. Take it right out of our hearts, right by the root, Father God. And renew us and fill us with your ruach, your ruach of spirit and truth and the power of the kingdom. Father God, let your words come alive within our hearts, within our minds. Let this Hanukkah, this feast of dedication, oh God, ten jubilee cycles, two jubilees, oh Lord, all these numbers of this restoration, the profound significance of the time we're in. God, it's the 50th celebration of the restoration of Jerusalem. God, we know you are doing something. And Father God, I don't want to miss the boat. I don't want to be sitting in the back seat. I don't want it to pass us, oh God. And Lord, there's something to this Hanukkah. It's different than all the others. You're doing something. Even in this pagan nation, oh God, who's got so much Zerus and so much issues, and out of nowhere our leader says, Jerusalem, you're the capital of Israel. My God, there's a God in Israel. And miracles are alive today. It's a Hanukkah miracle. And Father God, I'm praying for more Hanukkah miracles. Let our light shine. Let us be a burning lamp and near to meet, O God. Unto you, your kingdom, your tenants, and your son, Yeshua. That's what infuriates the dragon. Those who are obedient to God and testify and witness to Yeshua. That is what pushes back the strongholds of the enemy's camp. Father, we denounce supersessionism. We denounce Hellenism. We denounce Babylonian names. We, we, Father, your word says to get out of her. That's the book of Revelation, and I believe that's this Hanukkah. It's time to come out of her. It's time for the church to come out of Babylon. It's time for the body of Messiah to rally together, to become one in Yeshua, and to come into our Messianic identities, because the Messianic King is coming and establishing a Messianic kingdom on this earth. And now is the hour, and now is the time. Father God, our cry and prayer to you tonight is Hashivenu. Hashivenu. Restore us as of days of old, O God, and we shall be renewed. And Father, may we hear Israel say,
Baruch haba, B'Shem Adonai. Raise up every Gentile believer into their destiny into the kingdom to provoke your people to jealousy. Raise up every Messianic Jewish believer to begin going to the nations and begin teaching the Gentiles what to do and how to do it that our people will know you. My harsh desire, my prayer to you tonight, O oh God, is that Israel might be saved. In Yeshua's mighty name we pray. Amen and amen. Shalom. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord's face, his panim, shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May he lift up his countenance upon you and give you his shalom, his absence of conflict, his perfection, his kingdom, his power, his might. In Yeshua's name we pray. Amen. We pray that this message has brought the truth and reality of God into your personal life. Here at Congregation Zion's sake, we love the living God of Israel and seek Him through His word, worship, and celebration of the biblical feast, God's appointed time. All are welcome to come and worship with us in our Shabbat service every Friday at 7.30 p.m. Israeli worship dance is taught before every service at 6.45 p.m. Congregation Zion's sake is in Ephesians 2.15, one new man, Messianic Jewish congregation, where Jew and Gentile worship together as one in Messiah Yeshua. If you would like to partner with us in sharing Yeshua, please send your love gifts to Congregation Zion's sake, 1233 Shields Road, Newport News, Virginia, 23608. For more information, visit our website at www.zionsake.org or phone us at 757-874-3303. Shalom and may the Lord bless you and keep you. No matter who you are, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Find the Savior. Find Yeshua HaMashiach. Find the truth on Solace Radio. This week we have a wonderful Torah portion. But I'll tell you, when I started studying, I had no idea which way the Lord wanted me to go. Sometimes it feels that way, right? You know, you're walking in your life. And you have this important decision. Now, you may not be on a timeline for a Saturday message, but you have this important decision, and you have to make the decision as to which way you're going, and you get no help from the Lord, right? You just, you're walking along, and, and no matter how many times you ask, it seems as if He's not responding. Last week, we talked about free will. He gives us the free will to choose the path that we will follow. I'm going to start this week we reading the first uh, four or five verses of the portion. And if you're following along, we're in Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 18, in Parshat Shoftim. And it says, Judges and officers, you are to appoint within all your gates that Adonai your God is giving you according to your tribes. And they are to judge the people with righteous judgment. You are not to twist justice. You must not show partiality. Or take a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and distorts the words of the righteous. Justice, justice, you must pursue so that you may live and possess the land that Adonai your God is giving you. You are not to plant for yourself an Asherah pole of any kind of wood beside the altar of Adonai your God that you make for yourself. Nor are you to set up a pillar for yourself. Adonai your God hates this. 
And we're going to stick with those few verses and dissect a few things this morning, or almost afternoon, I guess. It starts off saying that when, you know, let me recap here just for a moment. In Deuteronomy, all of the people of Israel are still outside of the land of Israel. And Moses is giving these final words to encourage the people as they go in how to walk rightly, correctly before the Lord, what to do, what not to do, so on and so forth. And so he's not saying, look, appoint yourself judges and officers right now. He's saying that when you get into the land, that you are to appoint judges and officers, and they are to judge with righteous just, uh, justice, judgment, excuse me, righteous judgment. And so when they get into the land, it seems to me that it should be a priority to establish some level of um, law or rule or uh, chain of command if you're from the military or authority or something like that. Because otherwise, look, all of us know it. We're human beings and we don't tend to play nice. And so it, it helps having a little bit of a boundary, if you will. And it helps having people that we can actually seek out and say, what is the just ruling in this instance or in this instance? You know, I, I need a little guidance in my life. But there are some, there are some qualifications put here. The first is, you are not to twist justice. Well, that doesn't ever happen, right? Nobody ever twists the just, a just ruling or a judgment or even the justice system. There's no loopholes that we can find to twist the judgment in our own favor. No, it's absolutely incorrect. The next, the next qualification is very interesting, and it doesn't say it in my translation. It says it in a different translation. But it says, you shall not show partiality. In some translations, it says, you shall not show favoritism. But the one that I really like, it says, you shall not recognize the face of the person in front of you. And how often, when we're trying to distinguish in an argument or a ruling, how often does it actually affect us when we look up and we see that maybe one person on one side is our closest friend and the other person is our enemy? At that point, do we twist justice in favor of our closest friend? Or do we stick with the right ruling? The next qualification says you shall not take a bribe. For the bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and distorts the words of the righteous. Money is a very tricky thing, or any sort of bribe. I guess bribes don't technically have to be money. All of these, these three, do not twist justice, do not show partiality, and do not take a bribe. All of them carry within themselves an inherent benefit for the one that's giving the ruling. Uh, in other words... When a ruling is being made by the judge or the officer, and he or she does one of those three things, it is for a selfish game. And it's interesting because right now, your children are in the other room going through a series called Mr. Good and Mr. Bad. We started it last week in the children, last Shabbat in the children, and we started it in the youth on Wednesday night. And the thing about Mr. Good and Mr. Bad about the teaching is first of all, I don't know how old it is, but it's it's old. And second of all, for all of you who, you know, come to Shabbat and enjoy your modern technology, Mr. Good and Mr. Bad is not displayed on modern technology. In fact, Mr. Good and Mr. Bad is displayed on flannel graph, which some of you don't even know what flannel graph is. <laughs> it's okay. 
I went through the Mr. Good and Mr. Bad teaching oh, probably one or two, maybe three times when I was five, six, ten years old maybe. But when we started going through it again, it's very interesting and it's very simple. Because the teaching boils down to this. When you accept Yeshua into your heart, your heart turns from dirtiness to cleanliness. And even if your heart is dirty or clean, there's always a throne in your heart. And who rules on that throne causes what your actions will be or your words. So if it's yourself or Mr. Bad who's ruling on the throne, then your actions will be representative of that. Or if it's Yeshua that's sitting on your throne, or Mr. Good, your actions will be representative of that. And so when we judge and we twist justice and we recognize or show partiality or take a bribe, Yeshua comes off of that throne and our self goes back on it. It doesn't mean necessarily that you have lost your salvation in Yeshua. It means that you have taken Yeshua off of your throne of that of your heart at that moment for that particular decision. Yeshua can take that throne back if you so let Him. But it's a choice. And so, we see in this passage that justice is not something that serves our personal gain. In fact, if you were paying attention when I read the opening psalm, righteousness and justice are the foundation of the throne of the Lord. The foundation of the throne. Like we're not even, we're not talking about like the walls or the ceiling or the paint in the throne room. We're talking about the throne of the Lord sits upon, sits upon righteousness and justice. And I'll tell you, for all of us who say we want justice, justice, we want justice at particular times when justice suits us. Because when justice does not suit us, we ask for mercy. And by all means, ask for mercy. I'm not telling you don't ask for mercy. But you should seek them both without regarding yourself as the brunt, maybe, of the justice that's coming. But I would like to propose something. I'd like to propose that not taking a bribe, not showing favoritism, and not twisting justice is not just limited to judges and officers. I would like to propose that it's for judges, officers, and even for all of the people. In Proverbs chapter 18, Solomon writes, let me, I want to make sure I'm not misquoting here. He says, the first to state his case seems just or seems right. And if you stop at that point and rule upon justice at that point, then justice is going to be for that person. Or again, you know, depending upon who rule. However, Solomon doesn't stop there. He says, the first to state his case seems just until another comes and cross-examines him. And so when you have a case of justice between two entities, two people, to whatever you want, whatever we're talking about here, when you have a case of justice, the just ruling, the just judgment, the righteous judgment is not given after only hearing one side. You have to hear both sides. And I read a commentator on this verse, and he said that if judgment is rendered after being twisted or not listening to both sides or taking a bribe or one of those three that I mentioned, if judgment is then rendered, it is not just. And it denigrates, denigrates, is that the right word? Or degrades? Degrades the law and it ultimately demeans the rest of humanity who follow the law. So when a, 
When a judge or an officer gives a ruling that is not just, it doesn't just affect that individual case. In fact, it affects the rest of humanity. Because we all live by a set of rules. Whether, whether our sets agree or are the same, that's, that's probably up for debate. But we all live by a set of rules. Even, even the people in the world who say, I, I, don't, have a, I don't have a standard, anything goes. They live by a set of rules. Because when someone says, I'm okay with anything, and then you do something and they say, well, I'm not okay with that. That's where their set of rules comes into play. Now, look, between all of you and me, their set is almost exactly opposite of our set. And so when we say something that we like, they're not going to agree with it, and vice versa. But if judgment is rendered, then it demeans the rest of humanity. Likewise, if a just ruling is upheld, it will build all of those who are living according to the law or according to the rules. And not only that, it will encourage others to follow the same rules, the same laws. I want to give you an example. And I would like to ask you to withhold your judgment until the end of the example. Although you will hear my judgment even during the example. This week, on Monday... Well, let me, let me back up a little bit, actually. I have, a, I have an artist who I really like. He's a Jewish artist who sings reggae music, except he's not so much into reggae anymore. And his name is Matis Yahu. I love listening to his music. You know, he has a song that he talks about one day when, when we all live together in peace. And Matis Yahu was invited to a festival in Spain called the Rototum Sunsplash Festival. It's a reggae festival. He was invited there. And this particular festival has a particular viewpoint when it comes to the issue of Israel and Palestine. And they have lots of, it's, I'm going to use a strong word, but they have lots of propaganda on their website. A lot. But Matis Yahu, he's there to build a bridge. He's there to stand and say that one day we can live together and agree with one another. However, the BDS movement, the Boycott, Divest, and Sanction, is that the correct word? They put pressure upon the organizer and the committee of organizers of the, of the festival, and they said, we want you to get Matis Yahu to clarify his position on the conflict between the Israelis and Palestinians. Now let me take a pause here and say one thing. Let me insert just my opinion. They only asked for the opinion of Matis Yahu to be clarified. It's a festival. I can't tell you how many artists are there. And they only asked for one person to clarify his position. Matis Yahu refused, and I thought I had his quote. Let me see if I can find his quote, if you'll bear with me for a moment, because I was really impressed with what he said. He says, the festival organizers contacted me because they were getting pressure from the BDS movement. They wanted me to write a letter or make a video stating my positions on Zionism in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict to pacify the BDS people. I support peace and compassion for all people. My music speaks for itself, and I do not insert politics into my music. Music has the power to transcend the intellect, ideas, and politics, and it can unite people in the process. The festival kept insisting that I clarify my personal views which felt like clear pressure to agree with the BDS political agenda. 
Honestly, it was appalling and offensive that as the one publicly Jewish American artist scheduled for the festival, they were trying to coerce me into political statements. Were any of the other artists scheduled to perform, asked to make a political statement in order to perform? No artist deserves to be put in such a situation simply to perform his or her art. Regardless of race, creed, country, cultural background, etc., my goal is to play music for all people. As musicians, that is what we seek. Blessed love, Matis. The When he refused to comply, they de-invited or took, took back their invitation to have him play. Now before I finish the story, I want to take a break and I want to tell you a couple things. The BDS movement has made claims over the past several years that is not anti-Jewish, anti-Judaism, but rather it is an anti-Zionist movement that opposes the occupation of Palestinian land by Israelis. Previously, if you've been paying attention, they've only um, targeted Israeli artists or Israelis uh, or people who are going to Israel to perform. Uh, however, Matisyahu is not Israeli. He was born in New York, grew up in New York, lived in Israel for like a year, but he's still not an Israeli. Uh, and at this point, they have ventured beyond their statement of we only target Israelis or those outwardly supporting Israel. And in this particular moment, it is evidence to all that the movement has not just an anti-Zionist agenda at heart. Uh, it is in fact, the agenda at work is in fact the oldest and the longest surviving agenda that has ever been and is called anti-Semitism. And I know many people are going to agree with me or disagree with me, and probably not in here, maybe a few, but anti-Semitism reared its head as anti-Judaism for many centuries, and then it reared, it, reared its head as anti-Jew, and in the day that we are living, living in now, it is rearing its head as anti-Israel. Uh, but it's all the same. It's the same spirit, and it's the same end game. Because the end game is, if you look at their three qualifications, the end game is that there is no country of Israel. And if there's no country of Israel, then Jews aren't welcome there. But I'll tell you, and I'm about to quote someone, and I can't remember who it is. It may be Herzl, or maybe Ben Gurion, I can't remember. But he said, first, the Jews weren't welcome, Judaism wasn't welcome, the Jewish belief system wasn't welcome, and then the Jews weren't welcome. And somebody's going to correct me because I'm saying the, the quote wrong. But it's okay, you can correct me at some point. And then, it wasn't just that you weren't allowed to be Jewish, it's that you weren't allowed to live. You weren't allowed to live in this country, and so you had to leave the country. And then after that, it became you were not allowed to live, period. And so, when Israel got a country, it blew apart the argument that you weren't allowed to live in this country because now there's a country where all Jews are welcome to live. And at this point, they're seeking to reinstitute the idea or the concept that Jews live everywhere, but then the, I guarantee the very next thing that will follow is Jews are not allowed to live here, and then Jews are not allowed to live. It's a very dark progression. But let me get back to the story about Matisyahu. Matisyahu has a lot of supporters, and even if you've been paying attention to politics, Spain has made some... Uh, vast leaps with regard to their beliefs about Jews. And in fact, they've even welcomed Jews to come back to Spain uh, after they kicked them out in 1492. And so some pressure was put upon the festival, and it may have been by, um, by fans, 
or it may have been by political, uh, by politics in Spain, I don't know. But the festival reinvited Matisyahu back to the festival. Now you can look at this situation as either both sides won, because the BDS movement got their opinion out, um, and yet Matisyahu now uh, can play there, even though he disagrees. Or you can look at it as a lose-lose, because even if he's playing there, it's now evident what the true agenda of at least many of the supporters actually is. And so the next verse that we come to is verse 20, and it says, Justice, justice, you must pursue. And I give this example of Matisyahu because at least in my mind it is evident that justice was not pursued. At least initially, uh, maybe by the end it at least partially was, I don't know. And so when you read this verse and it says, justice, justice, you must pursue, it causes me and it should cause you to wonder why the word justice is repeated. Some scholars believe that it's repeated because it means that we should go to a good court in order to receive justice. Other scholars believe that it's repeated to give emphasis on justice. So that maybe if we only heard the word justice once, we might just skip it over and pursue something else. While other scholars say it's only just justice that we should be pursuing. It's interesting when you talk about pursuing justice in a just way, because justice actually can be had in an unjust manner. It can, justice can even be had accidentally. But we should pursue justice in a just manner. And that just manner could be one of a couple things. When we're pursuing justice and justice, it could mean that we pursue justice for one party and at the same time we pursue justice for the other party. That we don't actually pursue justice with only one in regard. In other words, you're not showing partiality or you're not showing favoritism. Or pursuing just justice could mean pursuing justice in a just manner or, um, let me break it down even more, not cheating the system or going through a loophole to get justice. Or not, there's lots of little things that we can talk about and I know most of you can come up with about a thousand things in your head about how you can pursue justice and get there quickly, but not rightly. Because sometimes... Well, let me, let me, let me step back here for a moment. I love watching law shows. And there's several particular law shows, uh, that I love. But I'm not going to tell you what they are. But the great thing that I love is you get to see the fight that people, that people have when they're pursuing justice or what they perceive to be justice. And this one law show that I watch, there's a person who he has compassion, like loads of compassion because he grew up poor. Loads of compassion for people who are dealt a poor hand, uh, dealt not a, not a hand that helps them along. And what he does is he pursues justice for them. However, the interesting thing is, is that he's living a lie because he's not actually a lawyer. And so, it causes me to think that in life, sometimes we want justice so bad that we'll say or we'll do something that we're not, or we'll present ourselves in a manner that we are not actually representing ourselves correctly. And we may get justice for that person. But let me tell you something about the law system. If, if any of those cases, if, if, if he was found out to be um, lying about his uh, credentials, all of his cases could go back and be opened back up. And it blows my mind that 
We sometimes seek justice so much that we'll get it any way we can. But when we do that, it opens us up for failure and it opens us up for justice actually not to be given. And what this does is it compromises our personal integrity. And when our personal integrity is compromised, then sometimes we move just a little bit farther because we don't see that we're moving away. Sometimes what needs to happen, if you see this happening in in your fellow brother or sister, fill in the blank, if you see this happening sometimes, it leads you to not trust that person because you see that what they're doing is not right. And so what you tend to do is take a step back and you don't trust that person for a little bit. But the benefit of taking the step back is that you begin to see their works as a body, if that makes sense. You see their works as a whole, as a unit. And then when you begin to see their works as a unit, you can see just how deep their integrity has been compromised. And it's interesting that the longer we remain connected to falsehood or lack of integrity, the less likely we are to recognize that we are connected to falsehood or lack of integrity. And what that breeds is then a shift that will go even a little bit more, a little bit more false or a little bit less integrity in your life. So it's important that you catch it. And when I was studying this passage, the next two verses appear as part of the paragraph in my Bible. So, you know, sometimes there's like an entity that it's like a, a complete thought. It's not in all, not in all the translations I looked, but it's very interesting that the thing that follows justice, justice, and righteousness, and that kind of stuff is you shouldn't plant up a pole next to the altar of God. And it says you're not to set up a pillar for your Adonai, your God hates this. And I began to wonder, why is this connected to pursuing justice, to pursuing a just judgment? And I'm, I'll tell you, I'm open to interpretations. But this is what I came up with. Let me start with a question. Will the improper application of justice serve as an inroad for the adversary into our individual lives? We lose our integrity when we distort justice. When we lose our integrity, we begin to lose our way. When we lose our way, our paths diverge from Adonai's path. When we diverge from the will of Adonai, we begin to place ourselves or other things in the place that is rightfully His. When something is in His place in our lives, we have erected something that we worship in the place of Adonai. And it is not long until a personal deficiency turns into a corporate deficiency. And in fact, idolatry once accepted in public is contagious. And we can see this in the history of the kings of Israel. And so, when you look at this passage as a unit, if you don't pursue justice with righteousness, it will in the end affect who you place upon the throne of your own individual heart. And it then will affect who your community places upon the throne of your community. Sometimes it seems like a big a big jump. Sometimes you're like, man, I know he did it. I know he did something wrong. I just wanted justice. So I just I just said a little white lie. It's not a it's not a bad one. You know, I was just I wanted the person to to actually get caught for their own good. You know, sometimes we use that line. For the, we wanted them to get caught for their own good. And sometimes maybe that's true. But I'll tell you what, if you let that person go, the person is not going to stop. If it starts with one little thing, 
It's going to get a little bit bigger. It's going to get a little bit bigger. And then eventually, they're going to get caught. It's just how it is. You know, when I was younger, I used to do all sorts of things, and I wouldn't get caught. Things against my parents' rules, and I wouldn't get caught. And my sisters both knew, and they both continually said, I can't believe you're not getting caught. You need to get caught because we weren't allowed to do that. So you need to get caught. And I said, look, I said, if I'm not getting caught, maybe it's not the wrong thing to do. (laughs) But surely, sure enough, I made one mistake too many. And eventually I would get caught and my sister would look at me and go, ha, you deserve to be caught. (laughs) But that's how we run our lives, isn't it? You know, we'll, we'll be a little bit shady on our finances because it's just shady. We're not going to get caught. But eventually, it will catch up with you. We're just going to, we're just going to not tell the whole truth. Which, by the way, sometimes is, I'm going to say sometimes is okay. Like, for instance, when your wife comes to you and says, honey, how does this dress make you look? (laughs) It makes you look beautiful is the correct answer, guys. Is my wife in here? Is that the correct answer? Oh, maybe she, maybe the baby's taking a nap. That's the correct answer. (laughs) Unless it truly doesn't make them look beautiful. And then the correct answer is, sweetie, I think you need to choose a different dress. (laughs) Because that's not the correct dress for today. (laughs) I'm just... (laughs) It's helpful to tell the whole truth in a loving manner. Okay? But when you... When you forego part of the truth to serve a selfish end, then maybe the next time it's not just going to be foregoing part of the truth. Maybe the next time it's going to be just an outright lie. And then after that, it might not just be an outright lie. It might be, well, I don't know what follows a lie. Could be any one of number of things. But all of that to say, just be careful upon the slope of the, of the hill on which you are traveling. Oh, good insight from the rabbi. He watches and he texts me. (laughs) Justice, justice. And he says, sometimes, this is a great, great insight. He says, sometimes when the word is repeated, it means that we can never achieve righteousness through unrighteous means. Thank you, Dad. (laughs) But I want to wind up with this as a couple applications. And there's some applications from this Torah portion, and there's some applications from the story about Matis Yahu that I, I just want to bring to you. The first application when it comes to the story of Matis Yahu, the number one thing that we must be aware of is we must be aware of the rise of anti-Semitism again. And as soon as I wrote this, I wrote this in my notes, I said, be aware of the rise of anti-Semitism. I realized that that's actually not true. Because anti-Semitism has never gone away. And so, if it's never gone away, then it cannot be rising again. It's just there. And maybe our eyes are now just being opened to how prevalent it is. In fact, just yesterday or the day before, I just got an email about it yesterday, there was a synagogue in San Antonio uh, that was desecrated. Swastikas. It was a, I think it was a conservative or orthodox synagogue. I can't remember. But let me tell you something about anti-Semitism is that when 
the swastikas come out or when the propaganda comes out or when the speech comes out, all it means is that we've gotten lax enough to actually let it out. Because it's already there, but now it's becoming evident to all. So, in one way, it's a win-win situation. Because now we know what we're dealing with. And I hope, I hope, that the Jewish people in America, at least at a minimum, open their eyes and see what anti-Semitism is presenting itself as today. However, when Asher was here, maybe, what was that, a month ago or so? He mentioned something that, that blew my mind, and I, and I continually wonder about it. Is even many in the Jewish community today, in America, uh, will not stand with Israel. And in fact, I've been in many discussions with people about anti-Semitism or about anti-Zionism or even about Israel and the Palestinian conflict, and that person turns to me and quotes a Jewish person's words at me. And let me tell you that when you're fighting for solidarity, there is nothing that tears down your walls quicker than someone in your own camp talking against it. And so Asher said something to the extent of, uh, and maybe I'm mixing Asher up with Rav Shaul. I'm going to cross. I'm going to cross some hairs here. But not all Israel is true Israel. Not all Jewish people are true Jewish people. Because let me tell you what a true Jew does. Is a true Jew seeks Adonai with all of his heart. And let me tell you something. When you seek Adonai with all of your heart, the blinds will be opened and Yeshua will be revealed. That's just that's the way it is. But that's not my point of true Jew and not true Jew. My point is, is that as a Jewish community, we need to stand in solidarity with Israel. Now look, it says don't twist justice. There have been some unjust things in the conflict. But when you focus on justice for one person to the point that it is injustice for someone else, that's when you have a problem. You need to do your best to focus on justice for both parties, for both entities. And so as a community, we need to beware that we are not only seeking justice for ourselves, but that we are seeking justice for others. And as a community, we need to be aware that the moment we begin to give in, the moment we use a loophole to get justice is the moment that we've gone down the wrong path and we'll end up worshiping someone other than Adonai. And so as a community, we must always worship Adonai because His throne is founded upon righteousness and justice. And we need to always pursue those foundations that are foundations for His throne as foundations in our own life. And so let me leave you with this. Justice, justice you must pursue as judges, as officers, and as members of the community. Justice, justice is what you must pursue. Avinu Shabbat Shemayim, our Father in Heaven, we thank You so much for the throne that You have set up in our heart. The throne that You reign on. Lord, I pray that each and every person in here will be caused to seek justice according to Your will. Justice not just for ourselves, but justice for others as well. Lord, I pray that Yeshua comes quickly. That He'll come quickly and set His throne up in Jerusalem. Because Lord, this conflict between Israeli and Palestinians is not just a conflict of flesh and blood. 
But Lord, is a conflict in the heavenlies as well. And Lord, no matter what justice we seek today, You, in the form of Yeshua, can bring justice in the heavenlies. Lord, I pray for all of those who question anti-Semitism today, who question its reemergence in the form of anti-Zionism. Lord, I pray that You would begin to minister to their hearts. And Lord, I pray that You would minister to each and every one of us in our daily choices where we can either seek righteousness or we can seek benefits for ourselves. Where we can either allow Mr. Good or Mr. Bad to reign upon the throne in our hearts. Lord, I pray that You would give us the strength to choose You. To choose Your Son, Yeshua. Lord, the strength to pursue justice so that we won't end up erecting a pole of worship to someone other than You. We bless You this afternoon in Yeshua's name. Amen. May Adonai bless you and keep you. May Adonai shine His face upon you and be gracious unto you. May Adonai lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. Vihuneka Yisarunai Panavlecha Veasemlecha Shalom Yeshua Meshichenu In the name of our Messiah, Yeshua. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. On the cutting edge of the Messianic movement, Solace Radio will rock your faith and bring the Bible alive. Find your Savior. Find Yeshua HaMashiach and explore the whole Bible and discover treasures there. Solace Radio. My perception of life seems to be changing as I get older. Maybe yours is too. I don't know if that's the case. But life in this world, life in this world, it's really a roller coaster. That's what I feel like, you see. It, 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 feels, it feels a little like this. That you're, you're always going up or down or, or changing direction rather quickly that you didn't expect. And, uh, you know, it's really uh, a kind of uh, unsettling. I find life to be um, not at all uh, a nice, relaxing... You know, you're thinking you're... As you grow up and, and maybe you reach retirement and you're, oh, some of us are even retired, even though we've, some of us haven't retired yet, even though they should have retired, I'm just saying. But um, there are people here who are still working beyond what would be normal retirement age. But as you, as you grow up, you kind of expect things to kind of finally settle down a little bit. You know, I remember when I was growing up, the idea of somebody sitting in a rocking chair uh, you know, on the uh, in front of the house or somewhere, and just uh, enjoying the days as they pass by. But um, <clears throat> so far, I'm, I have, don't have a rocking chair yet, uh, and that hasn't happened. So I'm experiencing this this roller coaster life. But um, as uh, as most of you know who are here, unless you've been here for the first time, uh, we're studying the book of Second Corinthians. And what has that got to do with roller coasters? Well, you see, the letter itself, this is a letter that Paul wrote to the congregation at Corinth, 
it reveals problems at the Corinthian congregation that Paul was having to deal with. But not only problems there, it also reveals Paul's own roller coaster type of life, his tumultuous time as an apostle. I mean, you can't help but catch that as he explains all the things that he has experienced. And I know some of you have experienced and continue to experience ups and downs in your life, things that you didn't plan on, maybe things that you didn't really want, and all of a sudden, the roller coaster turns this way, and then it's back that way, and it's up and almost down. Oh, my gosh, I think I'll close my eyes. Uh, so, you know, it's really, um, it's, it's life as we didn't expect it, I think. That's where we are. And today we're going to pick up the text. We're going to pick up the study in chapter 7 at verse 2. So if you have your uh, text with you, if you have your NLT 2 with you, I don't think too many people have been able to find, you know, but fly, finding printed copies of the NLT2 is a bit of a challenge. Uh, I've seen some giant print editions that are out there on that, uh, but we don't yet have any on our, available on our literature table, but maybe we will. Maybe we will. I say, I say, maybe we will. Let us read together. Uh, I'll read it to you, it'll be easier that way. I'm going to just read the text, the nine verses that we're going to be looking at in chapter 7. So I'll read that, and just to get the flow of the passage. So please try to listen carefully, look look at the text, or think about it. Or if some, people, some people are good at, they're better understanding things when they see them in text. Others may be better just closing their eyes and hearing it. So to, whatever works better for you. Beginning in verse 2 of chapter 7, please, Paul says, please open your hearts to us. He's writing to the congregation in Corinth. We have not done wrong to anyone, nor led anyone astray, nor taken advantage of anyone. I'm not saying this to condemn you. I said before that you are in our hearts and, and we live or die together with you. I have the highest confidence in you, and I take great pride in you. You have greatly encouraged me and made me happy despite all our troubles. When we arrived in Macedonia, there was no rest for us. We faced conflict from every direction, with battles on the outside and fear on the inside. But God, who encourages those who are discouraged, encouraged us by the arrival of Titus. His presence was a joy, but so was the news he brought with uh, uh, brought of the encouragement he received from you. When he told us how much you longed to see me and how sorry you are for what happened and how loyal you are to me, I was filled with joy. I am not sorry that I sent that severe letter to you, though I was sorry at first, for I know it was painful to you for a little while. Now I am glad I sent it, not because it hurt you, but because the pain caused you to repent and change your ways. It was the kind of sorrow God wants his people to have. So you were not harmed by us in any way. For the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in salvation. There's no regret for that kind of sorrow, 
But worldly sorrow, which lacks repentance, results in spiritual death. A lot of thought, a lot of things in this text this morning. Would you please stand with me and uh, get your blood moving through your body here before we, we all fall asleep, having had such a nice time of worship together and a nice Torah message. And uh, it's been, anyway, let's, uh, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as, as we open up your word, once again, we invite your spirit to fill us with understanding. Give us ears, Lord, to hear what you are saying and eyes as we look at your text to read and, and grasp what, what message you have for us. Lord God, our time in your word is precious, especially when we're together here and we're focusing on the same part. Lord, help us to understand. Help us to apply these things to our lives. Lord God, may, may we not leave here today unchanged, but may we be changed because we met you here and we heard you again. So, Lord, bless our time now, we pray, and look forward to what you're going to teach us. In Yeshua's precious name, amen. You may be seated. All right, don't get too comfortable, because then you'll fall asleep. We don't want you to fall. We want you to be fresh, raring to go. In fact, you don't know this, but Jonathan Edwards, anybody ever heard of Jonathan Edwards? Yeah, wonderful, great his preacher in the church in which he, he taught, there were no pews, there were no chairs. <clears throat> People came and stood, and he read his sermons. Maybe he had them standing because he knew that if they were seated, they wouldn't be able to stay awake. But we thought about that. If I see anybody you know, falling asleep here, we're going to take their chair away. No. <laughs> Then you won't fall asleep. If you do, we'll know about it. Okay, so in our nine verses of text that we're going to uh, work through this morning, uh, there are two basic parts to it, okay? The first part is the three verses, uh, two, three, and four, in which Paul continues to work. There are two different areas here. The, he continues to work on the human aspects of their relationship with him personally. Remember, that's the reason he's writing this a lot was to restore his relationship with the community, restoring the trust that the Corinthians used to have in him, but no longer, some of them no longer do, is the reason a lot of the text in Second Corinthians is there. He wants to restore the trust in him. And he does this, as we shall see this morning, by reminding them to remember first how honest he has always been in his dealings with them. Why shouldn't you trust somebody who is honest with you? I mean, you should trust somebody, you can trust somebody who you know is honest. But if the person is dishonest, you probably shouldn't. So he's going to talk about that. And then in the, uh, the last uh, six verses, from 5 to 10, Paul focuses on the spiritual aspect of their relationship with God. So he's got two areas of focus here. One, one on him and one about God, and that, that relationship which he's trying to cultivate. He did that as far as the relationship with God. He really focused on that when he was criticizing in the severe letter some of the sinful behaviors that they were still involved with. Now, nobody here is involved with sinful behavior, right? right? Because if you are, if, if you're still involved with sin, then you want to listen to this text. 
The rest of you who have no sin to worry about, you probably can just go wait in the men's uh, area of the sisterhood or something because this wouldn't apply to you. I presume it applies to just everybody who's here. Let's start with part one then. And we look at the text that begins in chapter 7, verse 2 with the words, Please open your hearts to us. Does that sound like uh, somebody who you... But you wouldn't like, I'm somebody you would like to be with, somebody who says, I'm inviting, please open your hearts to us, those who are, he wants to have a friendship with you, a relationship. Now, this verse, because we're only t- reading a letter through, you, you know, not, we're not sitting in one sitting and basically reading the entire letter, through, we have to at times understand why this little set, what this little section is saying in the context in which it was written. And we're not, we don't have the whole letter in front of us unless you have your Bible with you and you're reading that. But uh, the point is, the letter is, is a pretty long one. It's got 13 chapters in it. And he says, please open your hearts to us. But what you don't initially grasp, perhaps, is that this verse actually picks up from nine verses earlier in chapter 6, verses 11 through 13, where they left off. Let's see how that worked. Let's go back and look at that quickly for a moment. We're going to go back to verse 11 in chapter 6, and this is what we see. Oh, dear Corinthian friends, we have spoken honestly with you, and our hearts are open to you. See the connection there. Our hearts are open to you. The very same text that appears here in chapter 7, talking about your hearts. There is no lack of love on our part, but you have withheld your love from us. Who is the one who feels distant? Paul does. An achiness in his heart. I am asking you. Oh, you can hear him like begging. I am asking you to respond as if you were my own children. Open your hearts to us. So that's the way he ended verse 13 in the previous chapter. Open your hearts to us. And when you continue reading in chapter 7, after the text in which he's picked up that request for relationship, we have, we have done no wrong to anyone, nor have we led anyone astray, nor taken advantage of anyone. Come on, why are you open your hearts to us? He appeals to them, in case you missed it, he appeals to them as if they were his own children. Look here, I'm asking you to respond as if you were my own children. How would you feel as a father or a mother if your children didn't want to talk to you anymore? That would be a hard thing to live with. Most of us look forward to talking with our children and our grandchildren. Right, Persis? We do. Some of us have great-grandchildren. I'm still waiting for that one. But Paul's appealing to them like his children. He says, I'm asking you to respond like, like, like my, if, you, if you were my children. Open your hearts, please. But we've got to remember, we're reading a letter, 
And you may not have gotten letters recently that you off, that you like to read, because most letters that I read these days, I don't know about you, they're called emails. <laughs> Paul didn't get too many emails. But this is a letter, and, and like, like emails, as you well know, sometimes words are said in the text, and they're misunderstood at the receiving end. Paul's a little bit afraid that when they read this, they're going to misunderstand what he's, what he's saying. I mean, he's not in there in person to explain it. So immediately after at, at verse 2, he's going to add something. The words he adds are the problem. I'm not saying this to condemn you. Well, well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Well, who said you're condemning us, Paul? I mean, look at the words. It seemed very friendly. I'm not saying this to condemn you. Why does Paul, Paul start the very next verse with the words, I'm not saying this to condemn you? Do you? Did anybody see any condemnation coming in the text? He said, open your hearts to me. I love you. You used to love me. You're, you're like my children. Why does he start the next line of text with, I'm not saying this to condemn you? Look back at verse 1, which is the line, the text, just prior to where we started this morning. And you see this. Let us cleanse ourselves from everything that can defile our body and spirit, and let us work toward complete holiness because we fear God. What is that saying? Isn't that suggesting that, oh gosh, you're, you need cleansing. You need holiness. Is that kind of critical? It cannot be taken as a, if you get a letter from somebody who says, I'm going to pray for you because you need holiness. You'd say, really? I didn't know it was showing you can understand how, with words like that, he needs to clarify, because he's not trying to be critical. Yes, those words in verse 1 might be taken the wrong way. And that's why he says, I'm not saying this to condemn you, what I just said in verse 1. Let us cleanse ourselves and, and so on, and, and work towards complete holiness. He doesn't mean to condemn them with those words. Given that understanding, now we can finish verse 3, take a look at the rest of it, and see what else he says in context. I said before you, I said before that you are in our hearts and we live or die together with you. You see how he's, he said something back a couple of sentences ago, and now he's saying, but wait a minute, I don't want, I don't want you to feel condemned by that. I'm not, my goal is not to condemn you. Remember, I feel, I'm so connected to you, I said before, you are in our hearts, and we live or die together with you. That's how much we care about you. I don't know about you, but this, this letter, this is one of the most uh, revealing letters of all of Paul's reveals his heart, his heart for the people, at, in this case at Corinth. What a heart this man has for them. Of course, he started the congregation 
he has an, uh, you know something there that uh, he uh, he himself invested in he doesn't want to lose that investment he cares about those people so that's that's why we understand him saying he doesn't mean to condemn them he wants to be careful that what he's writing comes through the way he intends it he goes on in verse 4 to say I have the highest confidence in you, and I take great pride in you. You have greatly encouraged me and made me happy despite all our troubles. See, Paul is citing here four reasons to boast about the Corinthians. Does that sound like something that he wants them, he wants to condemn? Does it sound like a group that he has a problem with? He doesn't want to condemn them. He says, I want to boast about you because look what you've done for me. Look what you've done. He says, I have, I have high confidence in you based on what you've done, what he knows about. I take great pride in you like a father would of his children, hopefully. And he says, you and the Corinthians, you have encouraged me and made me happy despite all the troubles that I have gone through. And remember, at the beginning of the letter, he's, he revealed a lot of the troubles that he as an apostle had experienced. He's gone through a lot. If you don't know anything about Paul's life, he's gone through a lot, and he will be sharing more about that a little later in the letter, not in this section this morning. So his that, that first part that we've just looked at is all about restoring his relationship with the congregation, something which he feels is rather broken now, because he's heard about the things that are being said behind his back there. And we're going to start part two now of this is I'm calling this a single pericope they're connected the parts one and two the word pericope for those of you who may not have graduated from Talbot yet if you haven't gone to Talbot some of this stuff is gonna you know sometimes I I find myself using words that I've come to know and get used to using but it's like any other industry really you have a jargon that you learn right no matter what it is you do, you work with. If you work in a community, uh, whether it be a scientific community or whatever, uh, you know, legal community, or you 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 have ways of expressing yourself that only the those who work there really understand. This is a pericope. What is that? It's a set of verses. Pericope means a set of verses or, or sentences that form a complete, coherent unit of thought suitable for public reading or analysis. What we're doing this morning is analysis, in case you hadn't noticed. We're, so we want to choose a section of this letter that has a complete thought. And it's not always easy to do because the letter is a long train of thought. And you have to try to find when you're going to speak, if you're going to present or teach a Bible study or, uh, or you know, or, and analyze anything, you have, to, you have to know where things start and stop. In fact, when it comes to preaching, one of the first things you do as a preacher, anybody here want to become a preacher? You have to decide what section of text you're going to look at if you're going to be teaching from a book. That's called a pericope. Now in part two, especially in, in, uh, and we're going to come to it in chapter, in verse 8 here of part 2, Paul mentions that he wrote a severe letter to the Corinthians. Why did he do that? 
Why did he write a severe letter? I'm going to share with you, and Leah loved me for this, because this is, in order to understand how things got to be where we are in this letter, I'm sorry to say that if you don't like history, you're probably not going to love this, but we have to understand the history of what the man has been going through. What's been going on in Corinth? What has Paul been going through? What, what, is, he, what is he talking about? Uh, things that happened before, and if you don't know those things that happened and why they happened and where they happened, you're going to get completely lost. I might as well not even, you know, we might as well not even read it this morning. Because if we go through what's happening on the next part, you're going to get completely lost unless you understand a few things about this. So I'm going to give you a roller coaster life review here. A quick history of what has been happening to Paul. First of all, haven't seen this in a while, the geography. This is a map of the Mediterranean Sea. And uh, there's, I'm laying this out so you have a mental image of what we're about to go through here. In the lower right-hand corner, you'll see the, uh, the state of Israel that's down there. Now, it's not going to play a big role here, but there are two other countries that do play a big role. One of them is Turkey up there and also Greece, which I've colored in red. Some of you might understand why I've put Greece in red if you know their financial situation right now, they're in the red. Now, there, in addition to the, the, these th- countries here, really Turkey and Israel that we can concern ourselves with, there are four locations that you will need to be familiar with in your mind so you can have some idea what's going on. I'm going to highlight two cities and, a, and, a, and an area, uh, uh, three cities actually in an area. The first one is Ephesus. You've heard of Ephesus, but probably most of you have never been there. It's on the western coast of what is now uh, Turkey. Okay, it's right on the Aegean Sea there. A little north, if you go north of uh, Ephesus, up the coastline, you'll come to a place which was known in those days as Troas. So Ephesus, Troas, and now we're going to go across the Aegean Sea to northern Greece to a place known as Macedonia. That's up in northern Greece. It's not just one city. It's where Philippi and all the other Thessalonica and all the other places that you don't really know about but you've heard about. Uh, they're all A lot of them are up there in Macedonia. And lastly, since we're doing the book of 2 Corinthians, it has to do with the city of Corinth, which is in southern Greece. So keep those four places, Ephesus, Troas, Macedonia, and Corinth, in your mind, uh, visual um, in your mind, okay? Now, they're going to be important for what I'm now going to share, the history. I call it a tale of at least four letters. And letters is actually used uh, in two different ways in this thing. But, okay, historically, a a fairly quick run-through of the history. In the year 51, in the common era, on his second missionary journey which was a three-year journey uh, uh, that lasted from 50 to 52, Paul started a congregation in Corinth, and he stayed there for a year and a half. Because you can't start a congregation in two weeks and then walk away. You have people who didn't even know the Lord, and these people are new believers. And he's starting a congregation, and he's teaching them and spending a year and a half there 
with, with him, getting to know them and teaching the word of God. And then he leaves after a year and a half because he wants to go back to Jerusalem for the holidays in 52. He wants to be in Jerusalem for that. He doesn't stay too long in Jerusalem. But while he's gone, while he's out of town, infiltrators undermine his teachings, not just his teachings, his person. They start attacking his teachings and he himself. What kind of apostle is this? We went through a lot of that. Who goes through so much service. Now, so he's in Jerusalem. Now he goes back and begins his third missionary journey in from 53 to 58. And he travels back to Ephesus. You remember where Ephesus was? We knew where Corinth was. You remember where Ephesus was on the map? Western Turkey. He stays in Ephesus for two to three years. And while he's across the Aegean Sea from Corinth, he starts to hear people, word is coming back about what's going on in Corinth. There are problems that are developing there. The infiltrators have made problems. So he begins to write letters to them. Because it's not so easy for him to get there, but he sends letters. He can send letters. He writes a letter I'm going to call, I'm just going to number these four letters by the alphabet, A, B, C, and D. He writes letter A. Letter A is a letter that's been lost. We have no copy of it, so how do we even know he writes it? How do we know he wrote, he wrote it? You remember? Second, First Corinthians remarks on the letter that preceded it. So that we know there was a letter before First Corinthians. When he writes First Corinthians, which we do have and we have studied, he gets that, he sends that to the congregation. And Timothy, I call him Tim, uh, delivers it. He delivers it, but that letter doesn't really fix the problems. And so Timothy re returns to Ephesus to let Paul know about it. Paul is so concerned about what's going on, even though he's not ready to do this because he's got a great ministry going on in, in Ephesus. He doesn't want to leave Ephesus, but he, he jumps on a boat probably, runs a, you know, sails across uh, the Aegean Sea, and he makes a quick trip to Corinth, but he doesn't have a lot of time there because he's got commitments back in Ephesus. So he has to leave quickly, and he hasn't resolved the problems either. But he vows to return. People at Corinth are counting on his return. Turns out to be a problem later. We won't get into that. But you see, he, ran, he took that trip from Ephesus right across to Corinth, tried to work on it, didn't solve the problems, came back. Comes back to Ephesus. That's where he writes the third letter, C, I'm calling it, which is called in the text, either uh, sometimes referred to, it's a severe letter, or it can be referred to as the tearful letter that he writes back, appealing to them. We don't, ha we don't have that letter either. And he sends it with Titus now to deliver it. Titus, take this letter back to them, will you please? Meanwhile, remember the guy named Demetrius, described in the book of Acts? The silversmith who, uh, who, who riots, starts riots against, against uh, Paul and his ministry there in Ephesus. Paul is in trouble of, and, and potentially being thrown into jail and persecuted, God knows what. He flees from Ephesus and heads up north towards Troas. Remember that's the third place I showed you, Troas. He goes up there. He goes there 
to share the gospel, because that's what he's all about in his life, and also to find Titus, who he, he sent with the letter. He wants to hear what happened. Goes up to Troas and starts sharing the gospel, and, God's, and according to Scripture, God opens the door for him, and he's doing well, but he, he has no peace there. He's worried about the congregation in Ephesus. He wants to find out from Titus. He can't find Titus. He thought he'd find him in Troas. So he goes on, remember? Goes through the north of the Aegean, and he, he goes on into Macedonia, northern Greece. Now he's sharing the gospel in places up in the northern Greece area. And he finds Titus. Not only does he find Titus, Titus surprises him with good news about the letter that he wrote, the severe letter that they received, and they received it well. He was afraid that they wouldn't. And while he's up in Macedonia, he writes the letter we're studying right now, called Second Corinthians, letter D in the series, and he sends Titus with that letter back to Corinth. So that's the history behind this text. Now go, we go on to part two, the last six verses of today's study. And it makes sense now when you hear words like this, you'll hear, when we arrive, Paul's, Paul says to them, when we arrive, he's reviewing now, he's writing this in Second Corinthians, when we arrived in Macedonia, remember he's just heard that they received the severe letter well and they responded to it, and he's writing now a, a, a commentary on, the, on that severe letter, and he's, very, he's quite happy, but there are some reservations. When we arrived in Macedonia, there was no rest for us. We faced conflict from every direction with battles on the outside and fear on the inside. What's he referring to, the battles on the outside? What just happened in Ephesus? There was a riot. He almost got killed. He had to flee for his life. He went to Troas and then up to Macedonia. He says, when we arrived in Macedonia, there was no rest even there. We thought we'd get away from it. But the battles, <laughs> the battles persist. But he doesn't stay there too long. Like I said, he goes to Macedonia from Choaz, and uh, his memory of what just happened in Ephesus still lingers in his mind. That's why he says there are battles on the outside. He's had a one roller coaster life so far, just in this time of his life. I mean, you think you got a roller coaster? Look at what this man is going through. So when he failed to meet Titus in Troas, even though God opened up a door for him, he was depressed. He was just—he—he he had a love for Titus. He and Titus were tight. He cared about Titus. He's—you know—in those days, he didn't even know if Titus drowned. What happened to Titus? He didn't get a phone call from him. He didn't get a text. He didn't get a tweet. There was no, no communication. I mean, just think about what life is like then. When somebody leaves and goes away, you don't know what, once they're out of sight, you have no idea what they're going through until you see, until and unless you see him again. So he, when he sailed to Macedonia, he was hoping to find him there, but he wasn't even sure he would. And that's why he wrote battles on the in outside and fear on the inside. I love that because, you know what? It's, it's, it's the humanity of Paul. It's the humanity of the man expressing his humanness to those who are reading his text. He says, I, I, I was concerned. Everything was going wrong. 
Have you ever felt that way? The Bible is has has so much. One of the reasons that the Bible is has has had such impact on so many people for so many years is because it's true. It's all about life. It's life that you and I live. You should be able to relate to the things that Paul and I. You know what? I think we all can. We've all had surus like this. We've gone through it. And I'm afraid to say, as long as you're here, you're probably still going to be going through it. The Bible is life. Now, two important things happen when he gets to Macedonia. Here's the first one. But God, who encourages those who are discouraged, Paul is writing to what happened to him in Macedonia, encouraged us. He, God knew that Paul had gone through a lot and Paul needed some encouragement. Even though he was sharing the gospel and doing well at that, God knew he was missing things in his life. He had given his whole life. I mean, this is, this is a life of service. He's, a, he's an evangelist. He's giving up all his joys of life in order to spread the gospel. And now his good friend Titus is nowhere to be found, right? But God reunited them in Macedonia. And his presence, Titus's presence in Paul's life was a joy. You know, this text makes so much more sense when you know the story behind it, doesn't it? I mean, it comes alive. This is not, this is not just a, a letter of theology and teaching. It, it's, it's life. It's the life of Paul that we're reading about. I, I almost begin to feel as I study it, I begin to feel like I know the man. I hope you feel that way too. So he's greatly encouraged to finally find Titus. Verse 7 continues with the, the second thing that uh, they said there were two things that happened in Macedonia. This is the second one, that he found out the news. Titus brought the news back that the uh, people in Corinth had received the severe letter very well. And that was a great encouragement to Paul. He was so concerned about that. That was an amazing moment for Paul. Can you imagine? He's finally, imagine, he, he's worried about what happened. He wrote this severe letter, and, and he finally finds the man who can tell him what happened. Titus! Titus, come tell me what happened. What happened in Corinth? What did they do with that letter? And he says, Paul, you're not going to believe this. And Paul says, uh-oh, maybe I better sit down. And he says, they appreciated what you said. They agreed with your... With, with the things that you, you criticize them about, they are changing their life, and they are thankful to you. How do you think that made Paul feel? That is music to his ears. When Titus told us how much you longed to see me, and how sorry you are for what happened, and how loyal you are to me, I was filled with joy. The Corinthians had not lost their desire to stay connected to Paul. No wonder then, Paul was literally filled with joy. Verse 8, this is where we hear about the actual letter itself. I am not sorry, Paul says, and he's talking to the people he sent it to, I am not sorry that I sent that severe letter to you, though I was sorry at first for... I found out, I know it was painful to you for a little while. Sometimes we receive letters that are critical, and it may be that the criticism is valid. Of course, usually not. 
But some of us, yeah. You have to sometimes say, well, let me see this. If this is valid criticism, that they responded to it for a little while. After having failed to fix the problems in the congregation during his quick trip, Paul went back to Ephesus and wrote out his thoughts in this severe letter. That's what he thought after that trip. And right after he sent it, he was worried that it might make things worse than they had been before, finding out later that it really was painful at first. But the very next verse explains what then happened. Verse 9, he says, now he's, remember, Paul is rehearsing what he knows from Titus that happened in the Corinthian congregation to the Corinthians. Now he says, now I am glad I sent it. Oh, well, not because it hurt you, which I know it did. I'm not glad of that. But because the pain caused you to repent and change your ways. That's what he was after. It was the kind of sorrow you experienced, the Corinthians experienced. You, it was the kind of sorrow God wants his people to have so that you were not harmed by us in any way. It didn't stay very long. Did you realize that God may want you to experience sorrow in your life? And that there are times when that is used, meant for you to have, because God wants you, wants to communicate something to you, get your attention. You may be going through sorrow right now in your life, Cyrus. You may be asking, God, remove this. Please solve this problem for me. And God is saying, no, no, no. There's a lesson I have for you in this problem. Stop asking me to relieve it, the burden. Start asking, what are you trying, what is it, what behavior do you want me to modify? What is it you want me to know in this problem? It's hard when you're in the middle of that, isn't it? It's hard to say, God, thank you for this problem, that you care so much about me, you put this problem in my life. I don't think any of us here would like, they'd rather have, you know, something nice. You know, give me a little nice advice. Make life better for me. Solve my problem as I see it and remove it so that I can just enjoy life again. God says, I have, I have more for you than you can imagine. Listen to me. Pay attention to what I'm allowing to happen in your life. I'm going to use it for good, not evil. You don't see it yet because you're in the middle of it. The day will come, may I offer the thought, you will look back on the days that you're in right now with the problems that you're going through right now and you'll see God's handiwork. I've always said you see God best in your rearview mirror, not while you're going through it. I'm looking out at faces here and I don't know what's going on in your lives. For the most part, I know nothing about what you're really experiencing. You do. I'm going to guess that if your life is anything like mine, and I know mine, there are problems. There are challenges. There are discouragements. It's hard sometimes to get out of bed and go to work with the same people that are causing you problems or run to a doctor you have an appointment and you're concerned about what he's going to tell you you're there for a checkup for something he's looking for trouble you know 
you've had some medical tests, you're not looking forward to hearing the results. Is it good? Just tell me if it's good. The doctor says, come sit down in my office. We have some things to talk about. It's hard. Those times in life are hard. We've all been through them. Paul says, there is sorrow here. It's the kind of sorrow God wants his people to have, so you were not harmed by us in any way. Repentance, notice, the pain caused them to repent. And repentance, you know what repentance is? It starts with regretting your, your actions. You're sorry about them. So much so, you regret, you regret doing them. You're, you're, you, you want to change what you've been doing. You know what you've been doing is wrong, and you want to change it. So you change direction. That's Repentance comes from that word. You, it's a change of direction. Some think it's just a turnaround. It could be in any direction other than the one you're in, because the one you're in is not the right one. But... When you do that, when you regret that, when you start to change your behavior because you're sorry for what you did, it stimulates you now to do something else, to change your ways. Right? Think about it in your own life. Does this make sense? This is exactly the way life works. Our last verse for today, verse 10, for the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in salvation. And there's no regret for that kind of sorrow. Is there? Uh, some people came to faith because of sorrow in their lives. God doesn't always work that way, but often he does. Sometimes people are driven to the feet of Messiah because everything else in their world is collapsing. And he's the only one who offers any solution. And so you come in grief, broken. And Yeshua turns that into salvation. How does he do that? But worldly sorrow, let's contrast this with worldly sorrow. Because people get sorrow, get, are sorry for other things in their lives as well. Nothing to do. With, with God, worldly sorrow, it lacks repentance and it results in spiritual... It's the kind of sorrow that says, oh, I wish I hadn't made that investment. The whole investment went to you know where. I lost my entire investment. I wish I hadn't connected with this group of people. I wish I hadn't bought that car. That thing is just nothing but a, a money sink. So many things you're sorry about in life. I don't want to talk about relationships, but sometimes you do. <laughs> sometimes you're sorry you had this relationship with somebody and you wished you hadn't because now it's very broken and you didn't realize it when you started. Maybe somebody even warned you about that and you still went ahead. And uh, that kind of worldly sorrow is, is focused on yourself. I'm sorry because of what happened to me not about 
what happened to anybody else. I'm sorry for myself. That's the kind of thing. It, it lacks repentance. It doesn't result in salvation. It results in spiritual death. It, it's a cycle. It continues further and further. You continue to spiral down. Now I'm going to give you a sorry to report this. Even if you've placed your faith in Messiah, you're still a sinner. I know you thought you were not. You thought you well, I'm forgiven, and I'm you know I am. As far as God is concerned, He sees you through the Messiah. You have no sin because of Him, but you're not there yet. You're still right here, and you're making and you're sinning and doing things wrong on a pretty regular basis. But you are a sinner with hope. You're not. You're not just left on your own until God takes you home. That doesn't work that way. When he's done with you here on earth, you won't be here. If you're here now, anybody here now? You're here now? If you're here now, it's because he still has a reason for you here. You still have things to do. He has things he wants to teach you in this life. He's not done with you yet. Sorry to say, you're stuck here with me. And the rest of us, we're all here. Why is, where do, you get, where do you get the idea from that if I'm still a sinner after coming to faith, that I still have hope? What would make you say that? How about 1 John? Let me just close with this text. 1 John chapter 1. Not quite the close, but almost. If we claim we have, verse 8, if we claim we have no sin, we're only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. But if we confess, we agree with him that we sin, we confess those to him, he's, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all the wickedness and unrighteousness in our lives. You see what confession does? If you know you've done wrong and you're sorry for it, God stands there ready to forgive you. Always. He's never too busy. Never says, wait, I got a, a call I got to handle. Can you wait for a few minutes? He's always there. And he'll cleanse you. The key to repentance starts with a humble, teachable heart. A willingness to admit that you're, you're still a sinner who needs forgiveness. That's where it starts. If you've forgotten that, this is a morning to remind you of that. You're not only a sinner who needs forgiveness, you're also a sinner who is willing to change his or her ways. Because God doesn't want you to stay the way you are. Would you like your child who is, if you had one that was messing up and doing all the wrong things, you want him to stay that way? You want to forgive him for what he did or her and say, all right, but keep doing it. Nope. You want them to change. Stop doing what's wrong and start doing what's right. Micah 6.8 says, What does the Lord require of you as a sinner? What does the Lord require of you? But to do justly and to love mercy. Mercy. Unearned favor. 
Forgiveness for what you know is wrong. You don't deserve it, but He gives it to you anyway. Mercy. And to walk humbly, not pridefully with your God, but humbly. He knows a little bit more about your life than you do, about what's going on. Keep that humble thought, who He is and who you are. What does the Lord require of you? But that you justly and to love mercy and walk humbly with your God. Let's cl close in prayer. Avino, I thank you once again for uh, studying your word. There's so much to grasp here. And yet, Lord, um, we know that you've, you've called us to live a life in this world that's kind of challenging for us. We're going through a lot. It's, it's the roller coaster we didn't really want to be on, but we are. And so, Lord, help us, we pray. Help us to, to, to keep our eyes on you, to not, uh, not be so discouraged at times about things that are going on or maybe things that are not going on that we so desperately think we need and want, but yet they're not happening. Maybe we've prayed to you and asked you for these things and you've said no, and we don't understand why. But Lord, we have so much to learn. We thank you for every day that we're here that we can learn more. Help us to keep a mind that's open to you, to repent of the things we're doing wrong, and to humbly walk with you, to be merciful to those around us, especially our brothers and sisters in Messiah, to have mercy on them, to not be so judgmental, but to be an encouragement, to give a smile instead of a smirk, to, to be a... To be a, a even here this morning in our, our men's and, and women's groups, Lord, that we might be an encouragement to pray for a sister or a brother who needs, is going through some stuff and needs a little extra help. Lord, may we be a place where people find that help, that we encourage those who need encouragement. We're, we're your body in this world right now. Lord God, help us... Uh, Help us to be sensitive to those needs, to be loving and caring and merciful and humble. And Lord, we give you all the praise and the glory for everything good that, that happens, that you use us in ways to bless others. Thank you for that, Lord. May we continue to serve you and to do it in joy, keeping our eyes on you, never taking our eyes off of you. I know it's hard in this world, but Lord, help us to constantly see you even through the troubles that we're going through right now, just like Paul did. He was struggling, Lord, and you encouraged him. May you encourage us. And we thank you for what you're doing. Hashem Yeshua Mashikeno, in the name of our wonderful Messiah, who gave his life that we might have life. In his precious name, the name of Yeshua, we pray. Amen. Messianic Radio for a spiritually hungry world. Speak to the Rock. Get answers for your life. Find out what's missing in your Bible and why. Solace Radio, changing lives one heart at a time. Well, thank you, worship team, so much. Get back into our own right minds and focus on the love of God in this place. The things of this earth grow faintly dim as we do that. Amen. We're grateful for this hour and a half, two hour reprieve from 
getting beat on all week. Some of you felt like you've been beaten on this week. Man, I tell you, it can feel that way. We come in here and we come in with a limp. God does a, a healing work and pushes that socket back into place and we walk out in wholeness, looking at life in a much more positive way. Go with me in, you, in your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 26 this morning. There is an interesting ceremony here, born out of covenant, just like in a wedding ceremony, the token of the, of the covenant is exchange of rings, right? And so the tithe works the same way. It is a token of a covenant as well. In the closing chapters of Torah that we've been reading as we finished up another cycle, we look ahead here to the future of Israel, that we were going to cross the Jordan, we were going to enter the promised land. And Moses describes this ceremony that we were to follow when we would find ourselves in that promised land and harvest the ripe crops. And we look quickly at the ceremony. Verse 1, when you have come to the land, Adonai your God is giving you as an inheritance, taken possession of it and settled there. You are to take the first fruits of all the crops, the ground yields, which you will harvest from your land that Adonai your God is giving you. Put them in a basket and go to the place where Adonai your God will choose to have his name live. And so we were to bring our first fruits to the Kohen. The ceremony goes on in verse 9 by saying, now he has brought us to this place, this word of thanks here that they're giving, given us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Therefore, as you see, I've not... I've now brought the first fruits of the land which you, Adonai, have given me. We are then put the basket down before the Lord our God, prostrating ourselves before him. And look what it says in verse 11, and take joy in all the good that Adonai your God has given you, your household, the Levite, and the foreigner living with you. You see, when we rejoice, when we give back to God, the Bible says it should cause us to, what? Rejoice, right? In verse 11 and take joy in all the good that Adonai your God has given you, your household, the Levite, the foreigner, living with you. Verse 13, you are to say something. You are to say in the presence of Adonai your God, I have rid my house of the things set aside for God and given them to the Levite, the foreigner, the orphan, and the widow, in keeping with every one of the commandments you gave me. I haven't disobeyed any of your mitzvot or forgotten them. Verse 15, look out from your holy dwelling place from heaven, Lord. And bless your people, Israel. Bless the land you gave us as you swore to our ancestors, a land flowing with milk and honey. And so this is the prayer for the tithe. I'm going to ask our ushers to come forward this morning. Right giving is to be done according to the word of God with a correct heart in the context of an entire life of obedience, the Bible tells us. And so right giving is done as well here with as they had an expectation here, an expectation of giving. Tithing is the token of this covenant of exchange. We demonstrate our trust by giving a tenth back to God. and He demonstrates his faithfulness back to us by more than meeting the remaining 90%. You can take a tax deductible, take a tax deductible, take an envelope out in front of you uh, in your pew, and you can make a tax deductible gift this morning or tithe your tithe to Tree of Life, and we will cash those. And also, those of you watching online, you can go online and give a PayPal donation as well and for your records as well. Lord, we just do thank you and praise you for the ceremony that Israel was to do as we walked into our promised land. We thank you for the covenant of exchange, of blessing, Lord, the tithe. And we thank you that as we've walked in it for many years, some here decades, Lord, we can testify, Lord, 
true blessing it is to give, Lord, to the things of your kingdom, that the kingdom of God might be enlarged in our world and in our city and our community here in East County, among our people and those called to sojourn with us from the nations. Lord, bless your people Israel here today in the name of your Son, Yeshua. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, ushers, for that, for receiving God's tithe, our offerings this morning. While they're doing that, just take out your bulletins quickly. wanted to make you aware of a couple of items. This Friday, a memorial service for Joe Dow's mother, Elizabeth, will take place. You can see the address there in Chula Vista at 11 o'clock on Friday. Tomorrow morning, uh, we are going to, uh, unfortunately, support Charlotte. We, we're supporting her um, we don't, never want to see people leave, but she is moving with her family to Texas, not unlike many of you here, actually, over the next couple of months. And as she packs up and moves to Texas with her family, you have a, uh, a flyer there for her moving sale from 8 a.m. to 1, and they've been preparing this for the past couple of weeks, and so you can pick up some great deals, a lot of stuff to sell. And by the way, the proceeds of all, all of what is sold, Charlotte has designated that to come into other tree of life, which we so appreciate. So uh, get up early. Don't even need to take a shower with your bedhead and go out to East Lexington where she lives at 8 a.m. and pick up some good deals before they're all gone early in the morning. October 20th, Saturday, two weeks from today, following our worship service, uh, Skyline has asked us to announce, and and I, uh, I hope we can get a few folks out here uh, to come in their jeans, their long pants, and their tennis shoes and t-shirts, bringing gloves, hand trimmers, tree trimmers, you have a chainsaw, bring a chainsaw, bring a refillable water bottle. They're going to be down there from 7 a.m. to 4 p.m. along the highway here and beautifying the premises. And so we are a partner here at Skyline, with Skyline. And so um, uh, feel free to come on that Saturday in your jeans and with a work attitude um, to beautify the pre- project. They'll have plenty of projects going, outdoor projects. Uh, bring some goggles as well because we're going to have a lot of tree trimming and chainsaws going and beautifying the property down where it uh, borders 94 there. So uh, if you feel led to do that, please, by all means, come and and help support uh, the beautification project. Finally, on October the 27th, Saturday, uh, from 2 to 4 p.m., behind me in the gymnasium, the annual noon festival, $5 ticket will get you some desserts, and you'll hear about uh, noon as a code name for the Unreached People Group that Skyline uh, is partnering with in Central Asia in the good news of the Messiah that they have adopted in worship. And so we'll receive a live update from Steve Scott, who and his family have been ministering in the Central Asia community of Muslims. And uh, we'll spend some time in worship and receive live updates from them um, for those who are ministering on the mission field there while enjoying some array of delicious desserts in Central Asian style. So if you like to pick up a $5 ticket, you can pick that up. See Linda Berger after the service in the atrium to pick up your tickets. We'll have those available over the next three Shabbats as well. How many of you brought your Bibles this morning and want to study with me this morning? All right. Good, good, good. Open up your Bibles this morning to Shaul's letter to the Messianic community in Rome, part 16. We are coming uh, really to the end over the next month or so. Uh, some sections of the remaining portions of Shaul's Messianic letter don't have so great of an application as far as Messianic Judaism, but next week will for sure. Today, not as much. But history tells us that while the other expressions of Judaism in Shaul's day maintain some level of respect for the 
quote-unquote righteous Gentile. It was certainly not his equals. And so Paul, in concert with the decision coming out of the council held in Acts chapter 15, maintained that, no, in fact, they were equals in the Messiah, in the community, by faith alone, but they were obliged to obey the halakha, if you will, of the righteous Gentile as outlined in that apostolic decree to demonstrate that they had, yes, in fact, turned from the behavior associated from paganism back to the one true God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and of our fathers. And so, by the way, these decrees, other decrees and scriptures that were formulated, uh, not as the fundamental requirements which a Gentile had to fulfill in order to become believers, but they were basic regulations necessary to make full fellowship between Gentile and Jewish believers within the same Messianic community possible. And so the concerns of this portion of Scripture, as we open up this morning, deal with the Gentiles fulfilling this loving intention of the Torah by turning away from their pagan practices to the practices that were characteristic of Judaic norms of righteous behavior. So we begin in chapter 13 where we left off two Shabbats ago in verse 8. Shaul writes, Don't owe anyone anything except what? To love one another. Whoever loves his fellow human being has fulfilled Torah. For the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covenant, and any others are summed up in this one rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does not do any harm to a neighbor, and therefore love is the fullness of Torah. And so these three verses are the call back to the Judaic norms for these non-Jewish believers who had just come into the kingdom of righteous behavior, not to earn salvation for them, but because of it. It's amazing to think that all the laws in human life are summed up into one law. The one law that embraces all other laws is love. Yeshua said all the Torah and the prophets depend on what? Two commandments, right? Loving Adonai is commanded in the Shema, and loving what? One's neighbor as yourself. So Paul's point in these verses here is to show that the principle of loving your neighbor, when appropriated by the power of Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, leads to right behavior in our lives. He says we're to owe no man anything. How does this commandment work? Love you. God bless you. How does this work in daily life? Does the commandment mean here from Paul that we should never borrow money or never purchase things on an installment plan, our houses, our cars? Is that what Paul's talking about? No, there are many scriptures actually that are there that actually regulate, that do not prohibit, but they regulate debt and borrowing. Exodus 22.25, Leviticus 25.35, Deuteronomy 15.7. I could go on, half a dozen of these, a dozen minimum. But there are different interpretations here as to how this commandment should be related to monetary practices and society. But some good general rules that are here for us today are common sense that nothing should be purchased by ourselves unless we can meet the obligations for paying for them, right? Amen. If you're purchasing a house or a car and you're making periodic monthly payments on those things, we have to be able to make the payments. We do not owe the money until the payment is due, but what we but we owe it when it is due, or within 14 days thereafter for our mortgage agreement. At the same time, on the other hand, the Scripture warns us against the dangers of debt, right? Solomon writes in Proverbs 22, 20, uh, verse 7, 
The borrower becomes what? The slave of the lender. Often debt reveals underlying greed that drives us to buy things that we just really cannot afford. We want the status that goes with having nice things, and, and we go into debt to get those things. And if we borrow too much, oftentimes we have to declare bankruptcy. That is a horrible witness, right? That is tantamount to stealing, actually, biblically. And so we need to be very cautious in our lives when we take on debt, especially for items that depreciate. You see, paying off debts, how many of you know, is extremely hard work, very hard work. It requires a lot of discipline. For example, I know most of you in this room, if not all, would really truly enjoy that $5 latte at your favorite coffee shop, right? But you're trying to get your credit cards paid off. And so what you should be saying to that is no to that latte. It's not easy to get out of debt. Why? It requires denying ourselves in order to reach that goal. The same with the debt of love, Paul says. Except there is an exception that you will never get this debt paid off, Paul says. You'll never get to the point in your lives, Paul tells us, where you can honestly say to your li- in your life, I love my wife as much as I should. I just don't need to work at it any longer. We never get to that point. We think we do. The reason it's difficult to love others is that it always requires self-sacrifice, right? Always requires denying ourselves. You see, if you're like me, I'd rather sit and watch the news or a sports program on television than get up and help my wife with the dishes or the laundry, and she knows that. Oh, come on. Not just me, right? Paul writes that we are to know, oh man, nothing but love. My friends, debt creates pressure. How many of you like that type of pressure? Nobody likes that, right? But again, there is one debt that you will always owe. You'll never be able to pay fully off the debt of love to other people. No matter how long we've been Yeshua followers, I don't care if you've been a believer for 50 years and how much we've grown as a believer, how many of you know, you and myself, we have still a lot of room, a lot of room for growth. Would your family say, yes, he or she is a loving person? Granted, it's a lifelong process. We often fail to love as we ought to love, but love should be our diligent focus. And over time, there should be prokopto. There should be progress. My wife is nodding her head more than I would like right now. Now, don't miss the foundation. The foundation for loving others always must be that we have, as we sung about this morning, that we've experienced the love of God in His Son, Yeshua. You see, if you and I try to love other people when we've not experienced God in Messiah, we're just in, we're into something else then. We're into moralism at that point. In other words, we may love others because we want to get something from them or because of, of what love does for us. No, it's only after we've come to the tree of sacrifice as guilty sinners and receive God's gift of eternal life that we have the capacity then to do that, to deny ourselves and then to love others as only we should. Only then will our motives be totally correct, and that motive being what? To glorify God who loved us while we were in our sins. Actually, love will do more, will do more to win people to Yeshua than probably anything, right? God's telling us to love one another in order to demonstrate what society can be. But as we as believers continue, though, to commit the sins that the next few verses are going to discuss, Paul says, you're no different. We're no different from the world. What are these sins? Well, do not commit adultery. Love forbids adultery. Adultery refers to what? All forms 
of sexual immorality. This would include sex outside of marriage, before marriage, homosexuality, all other forms of sexual deviation. Sex is a means of having children carrying on the human race. We know that we're set apart from the other animals by our rationality and intelligence. My wife and I were talking about that this morning, how smart really is our dog on the scale of that. But we're different than our animals. We can know who we are, what is happening to us when other animals don't understand. Sexual immorality destroys a person's body in that it lowers our body to their level, to an animal's level. It declares that life is to be lived on that level of passion and instinct, ignoring the life God has given us in His Spirit. Sexual immorality destroys our bodies in that it corrupts the most intimate temple of the Spirit. It's destroying our bodies in that it creates all sorts of problems, right? Emotional problems. It, it creates spiritual problems as well for the people that are involved. Having out, sex outside of marriage creates a lot of problems, creates guilt, negative thoughts within a person, whether that person admits it or not. And God put these thoughts in as a safeguard to try and turn us back to Him. And although those who commit adultery convince themselves that they love their new partner, they're deceived. They mistakenly think that the new partner is somehow going to make them happy and meet their needs, and they're deceived. Love forbids, forbids murder, right? God gave the commandment to protect human life. Life is to be respected. Life is to be cherished. And at the same time, while most of us have actually never murdered anyone, Yeshua pointed out something greater, that our anger towards somebody else violates that command. And therefore, the answer to solving the problem of murder is to get rid of hate, to get rid of anger. But how do we do that? It's not simply good enough to say that we love somebody. Words alone will not get rid of anger. It will not get rid of hate. It will not get rid of murder in this world. We as Yeshua followers must demonstrate what it is to love and proclaim how someone can have his or her heart changed from anger and hate back to love. Love forbids adultery. It forbids murder. It forbids what Paul says, stealing as well. Love forbids it. Taking what belongs to others is not loving them. Right? It is loving who? Yourself. Above them. Before them. Because you think you have a right to what they have. The word steal here in Greek means to cheat, to take wrongfully from another person, either legally, either legally or illegally. Stealing can be legal, but this word here in Greek means to take from them either illegally or legally. You see, the laws of the land are not the determining factor and rule governing whether a person is stealing or not. And that's what's so often misunderstood about this stealing business. The scriptures teach that stealing is taking of anything that rightfully belongs to others. A couple of forms of it come to mind. Number one, a person steals by taking something which, of course, is actually possessed or personally owned by somebody else. It might be something simple and easy as you know, stealing office supplies from your workplace. Guilty, Lord. Uh, stealing an answer from a fellow student's test. Guilty. Or it may be something more like embezzlement of funds. I heard of a church up in Chino many years ago. Their accountant embezzled a million dollars from the church through bookkeeping you know, procedures. Or number two, a person steals by doing something else, by keeping back or hoarding. You see, when we use our God-given ability to make money and produce goods, then we begin to keep back and we begin to hold back and hoard things. That also can be equivalent to stealing as well. There's no question that the means to meet the 
needs of the world, how many of you know they exist today? The lack is not the resources today in the world. The lack's not even the manpower. No, the lack is a sacrificial commitment to give the resources and to go and become personally involved. And so love forbids adultery. It forbids murder. Love forbids stealing. And it forbids covetousness, right? Don't covet. The word in Greek, again, can't even pronounce it. It means to desire and crave. We can desire both good things and bad things. And in Paul's present context, we are not to covet in an evil sense. The commandment condemns not only the act of sin, but what? The desire of sin here. The desire to sin. The desire is what covetousness is about. Craving and desiring something is what covetousness actually means. In other words, it precedes the act of stealing, in a sense. And so it strikes, this commandment strikes at the very heart of what we are deep within ourselves. Why? Because craving and desiring, it's a natural thing. It's a fact of human nature. We crave things which others have, yet we might not crave what they have, but we crave to have possessions like they have. God is saying that we are not to covet what our neighbors have. Why? Because it causes us to focus our energy and our attention and our efforts upon getting more and more and more. You see, as a contrast, Paul says, love is something else. Love focuses upon helping people. Love focuses upon sharing with people, not upon craving things. Go with me in the Torah to to this commandment, chapter 20, Exodus chapter 20. Here's the commandment in black and white. It notes the kinds of things that we are not to covet. What are these things? Our neighbor's house, right? Their personal provision. Our neighbor's wife, right? Their maidservant their manservant, their employees, whatever, their ox, their donkey, right? their possessions, their property, their wealth, etc. God then adds, anything that is thy neighbor. Exodus 20, 17. A Yeshua follower who loves his neighbor is not going to covet what they have. Instead of desiring their possessions, he's going to focus on, or she's going to focus on something else. What is that? Building them up. Blessing them. I love what the great... Uh, late Billy Graham said, Reverend Billy Graham, he said this, he said, the world's favorite verb is get. The favorite verb of the believer ought to be give. And Paul is not here exhaustive, not being exhaustive in these verses. And so he adds in love your neighbor as yourself, verse 9. We're supposed to love ourselves, but we're not supposed to only love ourselves. God expects us to love our neighbor as ourselves. Love does not what do harm to a neighbor. Again, what does it mean to love? Scripture spells out some very specific acts involved in love. What Love is, what, patient? Love is kind, right? Not jealous, doesn't boast, isn't arrogant, doesn't behave itself indecently, isn't selfish, right? Doesn't insist on its own way, its own way, its own rights. It's not easily provoked. I'm breaking every one of these as I'm reading them. Thinks no evil, rejoices not in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Loves bears all things, love believes all things, love endures all things. And you might think about the past week as we've seen this circus-like thing with the Supreme Court and think about some of these things regarding love. Love is the fullness of Torah. Now my understanding here is Paul is countering his critics who are accusing Paul with no corroboration, by the way, of abandoning the Torah and promoting licentiousness. He is showing them that when Yeshua followers love others, they are fulfilling the Torah. And while we are always going to fall short 
of loving others perfectly, the Messiah Yeshua, who is our capital R righteousness, did perfectly fulfill Torah on our behalf. But as we practice this love, biblical love, we're to seek the highest good of those that we do love. We will not commit adultery. We will not murder. We will not you know, covet. We will not steal. We will obey God's holy commandments. So many pastors around the country right now are preaching messages that are getting people fired up about unhinging from the Torah, unhinging from the Old Testament. My goodness, have you read Paul? Have you read anything? Love is the fullness of Torah. It doesn't supersede it, but through being the beginning, the end, it's the motivating force at work in it. My friends, God's love is to be demonstrated to our world through us. The world has to be given this opportunity to see God's love in action so that they also have an opportunity to become followers of the Messiah. But Paul goes on in verse 11, besides all this, he writes, you know at what point of history we stand. (laughs) So it is high time for you to rouse yourselves from sleep. For the final deliverance is nearer than when we first came to trust. The night is almost over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and arm ourselves with the weapons of light. Let us live properly as people do in the daytime. What does that mean? Not partying, not getting drunk, not engaging in sexual immorality and other excesses, not quarreling and being jealous. Instead, clothe yourselves with the Lord Yeshua the Messiah and don't waste your time thinking about how to provide for the sinful desires of your old nature. So here's our response to the coming day. We've looked at our response as Yeshua followers to our neighbor, but what's our relationship and what's our response going forward in the future prophetically? Well, Paul exhorts these Gentile believers predominantly that they were not to please only themselves in matters of purity behavior. They were to recognize that their faith called them to sacrificial Torah respectful service on behalf of the stumbling of Israel in light of the future return of the Messiah Yeshua to Israel. In verse 11 and 12, as Yeshua followers, Paul writes, we're to know the times and make sure that we know them. What strategic time or critical period of time is Shaul referring to here? What is the period of history that Paul says, hey guys, don't overlook? Number one, the day of final deliverance. And number two, the day when we shall meet the Lord Yeshua face to face. Paul implies here that his readers, by implication us today, nearly 2,000 years removed, are prone to what? Spiritual drowsiness. We are not alert. I'm speaking to me right now. We are not alert when opportunities arise in life to share the gospel and we, they pass us by. We miss them. How many times do we miss them? Whether at the gym or at the store or at the bank. We, we know when we miss them. Or we waste time on trivial matters. Why? Because we're not recognizing the shortness of the hour. There is the sleep of false security. What do I mean? Here's some false security, that your job is going to be there forever. Man, I remember early 1990s, I was on a partner track at this large, the largest CPA firm here in San Diego. And I made a critical error in judgment. I'm on a partner track. I'm on the track. And within hours, I was gone. 
One error in judgment. It wasn't even a big deal, really. But it showed them a lack of trust, that there was a breach in trust. Maybe that's happened to you. Maybe just the way in which society is going. There is, the, there is a sleep of false security, the sleep of slothfulness, the sleep of complacency, the sleep of neglect, the sleep of what we see a lot in our world, indifference, right? Too many believers, too many of us are asleep and paying no attention to what's going on in the world. We're not watching. So many are not observing the signs of the times. It is time to get up, to move out, to act now before it's too late. Why? Because our final deliverance, Paul says, is closer, nearer than when we believed. Go with me to Luke chapter 21. Paul says to awaken out of sleep. He says, arouse yourself, get up, pay attention, look at the world situation, look at yourselves, look at the uncertainty of life, look at the signs. Yeshua said, verse 25, Luke 21, there will appear signs, right? In the sun, what? The moon and stars and on the earth, nations, ethnos, will be in anxiety and bewilderment at the sound and surge of the sea, as people faint with fear at the prospect of what is overtaking the world, for the powers in heaven will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in the cloud with tremendous koach, power and glory. When these things start to happen, stand up, hold your heads high, act. Why? Because you are about to be liberated. This thing's not going on this way forever. Some have questioned the validity of Paul's view of the last days. They say, they say Paul was mistakenly thinking that Yeshua was coming back in his lifetime or shortly thereafter his life. You know, it's probably correct to say that Paul did not expect Yeshua's return to be delayed for 2,000 years. That's for sure. But neither did he teach anywhere that it would happen in his lifetime. Knowing that you and I are going to be with Yeshua when he returns should it ought to motivate us to change and clean up our lives so that we're ready, so that we're, we're certain of that day. And many out there in the world, we hear it all the time. Well, it's really, you know, I'm a Bible, it's impossible to know whether we're living in the last days before the Messiah Yeshua returns. It's impossible to know that. My friends, do not believe those people. It seems to me that we have dramatic proof and I mean that in the most drama-filled way. Dramatic proof that we are living in Acharit Hayamim in the last days. And I want to just mention four prophetic events apart from the proof that reason why we're here in Messianic Judaism with Israel and all the proofs there that I believe defy coincidence. We took a quick look at many of these events in our study uh, last year and early this year in the book of Revelation. But here are four that are dramatic proofs that we are in the last days. Number one, the Euphrates River is going to be drying up. In Revelation chapter 16, verse 12, the Scriptures predict that the Euphrates River will be dried up by God to prepare the way for the, quote, kings of the east, India, China, Japan, etc., to cross over with their armies to invade Israel. This will occur at the time of the Battle of Armageddon, the final battle, by the way, which Yeshua is coming back, and he's going to come back and fight for Israel. And I clearly remember many years ago, when I began to really get a hunger for biblical prophecy, came across an article years ago, had the headline in the Indianapolis Star across my email, Turkey will cut off flow of Euphrates for one month. The article stated that a huge reservoir had been built by Turkey, and while 
filling up the reservoir, the flow of the Euphrates would be stopped for one month and a concrete plug for a diversion channel was going to be built. And years later, with this newly built dam, Turkey has the ability to stop the Euphrates River at will. That's just happened in the last 25 years. Revelation 16 talks about the conditions for this 1,900-plus-year-old prophecy are now in place. It's in place. Number two, prophetic events coming. China goes to war. Revelation chapter 9, verse 15 through 19, there's a prophecy of literal armies described as horsemen. 200 million soldiers are going to launch a war that's going to kill the third part of men. We looked at this in Revelation 9. Never in the history of our planet, except our present generation, has there been any one nation or even a coalition of nations like in NATO to field such an army that Revelation talks about of 200 million soldiers. The CIA World Factbook back at the turn of this century reported that China had 200,886,946 men of military age. The number has been growing, by the way, since 2001, 10 million a year to that figure. This prophecy might be part of a thermonuclear type of war. The smoke in that passage in Revelation representing the immense clouds of radioactive fallout and debris while the sulfur and brimstone Revelation mentions is simply melted earth and building materials. This is a dramatic proof that we are moving into what we call the last days. Prophecy number three, prophetic event we find, is that there's a worldwide numbering system that was been predicted, right? We looked at Revelation chapter 13, scriptures prophesy that a world dictator is going to come to rule over a world government. He's going to cause everyone on the earth to what? To receive a number without which we're unable to what? Buy or sell. Today, nearly every person on the planet has been assigned a number. In the United States, what's our number? The Social Security number. Electronic money, standard today. It's only with the invention of the computer could a worldwide numbering system be administered. It's a prophetic event. I was reading this week about this Amazon Go store. Have you heard about this thing? They're sleek and modern with a minimalist vibe. Black merchandise racks, wood veneer, polished concrete, pop music plays softly in the background, cameras nestled in the ceiling monitor. Uh, in the ceiling, monitor your every move as you wander the aisles. Big deal, you might be thinking. Sounds like Whole Foods. True, but you won't see a single cashier, a single cash register, or self-service checkout stand. Such things have no place in the future. You simply walk in, grab what you need, and go. Amazon bills your credit card as you pass through the turnstile on your way out. Moments later, an app on your phone provides a receipt detailing what you've bought, what you paid, and even how long you spent inside. Amazon runs three of these ghost stores in its home town of Seattle, and another one right now in Chicago. It plans to open others in New York and San Francisco soon, and according to a recent Bloomberg report that Amazon declined to comment on, as many as 3,000 of these stores will be built by 2021. Imagine a world where you never wait in line, hallelujah, or even open your wallet. A world where stores know so much about you that they recommend products and lead them right to you. Lead you right to them, rather. A world where shoplifting, which according to the National Retail Federation, drains some $47 billion from retailers nationwide each year is all but impossible. Hundreds of cameras track your every move, keeping tabs on everything you put in your basket. The cameras create a three-dimensional representation of you that looks a bit like the monochromatic and slightly blurred videos made by a Microsoft Connect. Amazon uses these images to know that it was you, not the guy next to you, who grabbed the the bottle of seltzer. 
Amazon's software is sophisticated enough to discern from the labels and packaging that you chose black cherry, not lime seltzer. Packaged foods like sandwiches, wraps, and salads bear a unique pattern of circles and diamonds that work a bit like a QR code. The software reads that code, knows you selected a turkey wrap. Weight sensors on each shelf know when you've removed something and when you've changed your mind and put it back. This is incredible, my friends. Um, the article finishes up by saying that they expect retailers to collect even more data as they eventually turn to biometrics to identify people as they enter and to charge their credit cards when they exit. The idea of scanning a phone on a turnstile will seem quaint. You'll simply nod your head as you enter to agree to the terms and conditions and create a store account. People are already trying to, some are trying to catch up. Amazon's rival Walmart announced a partnership with Microsoft this past July. The company's released few details, but a router's report earlier this summer said they plan to build a competitor to Amazon Go. This shouldn't be surprising. Even a retailer as big as Walmart has to face a stark choice. Adapt to the coming future of retail or risk not surviving it. Worldwide numbering system. We're right there at the door. Are we drowsy? Final prophetic dramatic proof that we are in the last days, the emergence of a new world order. We looked at Revelation 13 earlier this year in verse 7. John writes of the establishment of a one world government. The term new world order, this has become very a very prevalent phrase, right, in our political climate in the world today. It's been going on for decades. The UN troops are continually referred this way as a multinational force. Decisions have been made to establish already an interdependent community of nations that's going to rule the world under the UN authority. The scriptures say that this is going to lead us into a world government. The formation of this government is at hand. So forget about the hundreds of prophecies about Israel that will lead you to a conclusion that we're in the last. This is just four of them that we covered. Many more. Is it coincidental, my friends, that these major prophecies pertaining to the last days are being set up right now today within a short period of time. I don't think so. Paul didn't think so. The time is short. So let's finish. Go back to Romans chapter 13. Look at verse 12 again. Let us put aside the deeds of darkness and arm ourselves. I like how David Stern puts it in the complete Jewish Bible. With the weapons of life. It is time to cast off, Paul says, the works of darkness and put on the weapons of life. Of light. The works of darkness. What are those? The works that we do under the cover of darkness, right? That we want to what? Keep hidden. Keep secret. They're the sins which we know would cause hurt to other people. Or to ourselves even. Which we're ashamed of. Which we fear the results of. Ezekiel talks about it as well. Thousands of years earlier in chapter 8. Don't know if I gave you that verse, guys. Ezekiel 8, 12. Anyway, he talked about it. Then he said to me, human being, did you see what the leaders of the house of Israel are doing in the dark? Each one in the room of his own carved image because they say God can't see us. God has left the land. We're doing the same thing today. The weapons of light differ entirely. They contrast with the deeds of darkness, Shaul writes. The picture is that of clothing ourselves, right? We're to strip off whatever dark sins that we've wrapped around ourselves. We're to cast those shamatas away. Once we have stripped ourselves, what are we as Yeshua followers then to put on? We're naked. We are not exhorted to just put on clothes of light. We're told to put on weapons of light. What do I mean? What does Paul mean? Well, he talked a lot about weaponry, right? A heavy shield that cannot be penetrated by the works of, of darkness. What are these weapons of light? The armor of righteousness. 
belt of truth, sandals of the good news of the Messiah, shield of faith, the helmet of, of, of deliverance, of salvation, the Word of God, and our supernatural super weapon, prayer. Prayer is powerful. Finally, he writes in verse 13, let us live properly as people do in the daytime, not partying and getting drunk. I'm sure Brett Kavanaugh would love to take those college days back. Not engaging in sexual morality and other excesses, not quarreling, not being jealous. Paul's exact phrase here literally is, let us halach, let us walk decently. And his concerns are, again, the Judaic norms of proper behavior for these righteous Gentile believers, new believers that were leaving the behavior behind associated with idolatry and pagan culture. And we as well today, 2,000 years forward, are to walk properly and honestly before the Lord. We're to walk in the day, Paul writes, not hiding nor trying to hide anything. And Paul gives us very specific instructions here, very specific sins in particular that we are to jettison, that we are to cast off, not for a day or a month or a year, but forever. Number one, he says, rioting. One translation says, rioting, reveling, carousing, partying, unrestrained revelry. He brings up drunkenness here. Brings up, again, sexual immorality, fornication, adultery. Again, reminding ourselves that nobody's walking in light suddenly without warning, just kind of falls over the edge into sexual immorality. That's not how that works, right? Sexual sin always begins small when we begin to just toy with it in our minds a little bit. We sneak a peek at pornography. It leads us to look more at pornography and look longer at pornography. And eventually the temptation comes to go beyond even looking at pornography. But the temptation comes to what? Start flirting. And it sucks us into the final act. And the key to avoiding it is to judge every single thought as quickly as it comes into your mind and make no provision for it, for the lust of the flesh. Much of our sin is traced to that fact that we made provision of it because we entertained it. We toyed with it. I'm not preaching. I'm preaching to me too. Rioting. Drunkenness, sexual, these are these types of weapons of life. Wantonness, sensuality, lascivity, strife. We don't often think about that in the same relevance as we think about those other uh, physical things. Strife, contention, quarreling, arguing, striving. It is the craving deep within us as humans that we want position. We want to be recognized. We want honor. We want authority. It is a spirit. It is a spirit in the world today that is in comp constant competition with other people. That's what's driving this mud ball. Paul was referring contextually here to the strife resulting from resistance to the authorities. We'll continue on next Shabbat. Shalom, everybody. Thanks for stopping by the Solace Radio community and our new YouTube channel, Subscribe to our channel. Share the teaching with friends. Hit the like button. Do all the regular stuff. It helps us rise in the YouTube universe, enabling us to reach those who need comfort and solace. Comment too. We read all comments from the community and try and answer them in at least 24 hours. Once again, thank you for listening to the word. We pray you are blessed by the teaching you just heard. If so, check out the links in the description for more info.